A good Thursday morning to you on this May 6th edition of Real Talk. We've just been having a conversation in studio about Dogecoin. Everybody's paying attention to it. You know, it started off as a joke, as like kind of the crypto equivalent of a of a penny stock. And then and then now it's way up and, and, and well, like up 60 times. And people are going, wait a second, I thought this was supposed to be a joke. Is it or not? I literally asked the same question. To Benny and all the rest of the guys, Graham and, well, you know Adam from Bitcoin. Well, just the other day, I was like, come on, Dogecoin, what's the deal? If you have questions and you want to go to a source, a trusted source, you can find Bitcoin well under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. So, Sarah Hoyles, did you, uh, in the last 10 minutes, get onto your app, get onto your ShakePay and, and, and immediately load up on Dogecoin? Did you just drop 30 grand on, on crypto? What, what, where are you landing on this one? I, the jury is still out on it. I'm, I'm unsure. <laughs> I mean, I do enjoy a dog or two. Yeah. I mean, I, they are just, I really, you know, dogs are better than people, frankly. So Okay, wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> where are you going with this? <laughs> take take me along on that massive swerve in well, theme. Dogecoin, okay. dog. Okay. Therefore. Okay. And you know, people st- suck. Oh, okay. <laughs> Where are you at with crypto? Nowhere. Um, no, you're just yet. curious about it. It's capturing your attention. It definitely is capturing my attention. I I'm curious about it. I I mean, I appreciate the uh, the concept of it. Uh, I've talked with folks about uh, mining it. And the you know how much it, it takes to actually mine it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm fascinated by it, but I'm also very intimidated by it. A so million questions. One million, at least, <laughs> yeah. at least. I love this from Crazy James, who chimes in on on our live chat, like right out of the gates. He says, uh, "My local hockey team won thirteen three last night." He says, "So the play by play kept me busy." Everybody's everybody's checking in and uh, letting us know exactly what's going on in their neck of the woods. I love this. The live chat every single morning, people just gathering in community. This is great. Uh, wanted to let you know that coming up in a few minutes, we're going to talk to a group of physicians that are part participating uh, in a live event on Twitter this evening. It's through Healthcare in Canada, and they're going to they're going to be talking about basically COVID-19 perspectives across Canada and the lessons that they've learned. So I'm looking forward to it. We're going to check in with Dr. Nahid Dosani, a palliative care physician, uh, Dr. Hakik Varani, uh, a public health specialist, and Dr. Monica Dutt will join us out of the Atlantic region of Canada. We'll get their their different uh, perspectives on on what they've learned over the last 14 months or so. I'm not sure we'll have enough time. What have we learned through COVID-19? We could probably talk about that for a week. Maybe we should. Uh, that's coming up. We're going to talk to a couple of filmmakers. You know, we've been excited about Northwest Fest. It gets going today. And we've been telling you about, about, about Canada's, one of Canada's most exciting film festivals, nonfiction film festivals, so to speak, docs. And uh, of course, it's all different this year. Uh, nobody's gathering in, you know, nobody's packing theaters, which is always part of the beauty of a film festival, right? You get to hang out with the filmmakers and you get to you know, Q&A after it. Oftentimes you're seeing the, you know, in, in some cases the, the the national or even the international, the world premiere, so to speak. That still is the case with Northwest Fest. But of course, it's all virtual this year. The cool part is it means it's all on demand. So if you can't make Vinyl Nation uh, we're going to be talking to the filmmakers behind that doc today. If you couldn't make it, say, Thursday at 7 when it screens at the theater, you, you can watch it on demand, which is 
actually really neat. And right after we sign off the show today, our Patreon supporters, if you check your email, you're going to notice we've got you some special access to Northwest Fest today. So we're excited about that. The federal minister of small business is going to join us, the Honorable Mary Ng. We're going to talk a bit about that budget and, and small business recovery and take some of your questions. The best way to get them to us is by using our hashtag RealTalkRJ or, of course, sending us an email to talk at RyanJesperson.com. And then this was an interesting one, uh, Sarah. You're producing this show. You're putting it together. And uh, Dr. Fiona Matatal, who's a pretty, as a matter of fact, when you take a look at healthcare professionals that are pretty candid and open on social media, I would say across the country, across Canada, she's one of the higher profile commentators. She's she shared with us many of her thoughts or experiences uh, through the course of this pandemic. And you've booked her. It'll be her real talk debut. It's kind of a, it's kind of a fun. I mean, there's going to be some seriousness, I'm sure, to the conversation, but it's kind of fun subject matter. Absolutely. I mean, she's been following along. She's part of the response for COVID. Um, but, you know, there's it's it's heavy stuff. And so she's basically said, hey, let's uh, let's celebrate the helpers. I mean, you mentioned Mr. Rogers saying, you know, in crisis, when you're in difficult times, you look for the helpers. And that's exactly what the doctor is doing. So I'm excited to hear from her how she's celebrating and, and spotlighting yeah. folks that are making a difference. She's wanting to hand out virtual trophies, yeah. so to speak. Pats on the back when we can't pat people on the back. Virtual high fives. Yeah, that's right. Brenda chimes in. I was getting some tweets about this yesterday. Brenda says my granddaughter uh, wants to know where Jespo's eyeglasses are. Um, they're right here. And um, someone said uh, one of the there was like kind of like a mom son combo on Twitter yesterday asking me about it. And, and mom is saying, I wish I can. I apologize. I can't remember. Mom says to, to the little guy, well, he's got uh, contacts in. He doesn't he doesn't need his glasses because he's got contacts in. Au contraire. Um, <laughs> contacts in are, are like I would like I'm not uh, I'm trying to think of something I would probably not do bungee jump. I would rather bungee jump than deal with contact lenses. I'm scarred. <laughs> Sam's laughing. Do you have contacts? I, I don't know. You have, I, are I you am, like 2020? You've got pretty good. I have pretty good vision. Um, my dad got contacts like late in life. And I remember being a kid and, and he was like wearing them for the first time. And like literally, I, I don't even remember how old I am, but I do remember like he was having trouble getting them out. And yes. He'd, like, he'd look at me like straight up with his eyes and be like, okay, are, are they still in? Are they? And I'd be like, oh, one is still in, dad. You got the <laughs> other one out. It's on the floor somewhere. Or you force. Yeah. yeah. Or somebody's got it like, oh, my like contact lens is going around the side of my eye. And I'm just like, ah. see, I'm the same. Ah. Like, I don't want anything to do with that. People holding oh, this. Stop it. <laughs> okay. So I'm, you don't have contacts. I'm assuming. I no, I don't. Like, yeah. I'm like, I, cause I don't know if I'd be able to deal. Yes. No, I cannot deal. I will not deal. I know somebody's going to get in touch right now and say and say, Ryan, you know, grow up. What is there? You're from the 1950s. Contact lenses have changed big time. Um, there's all kinds of different ones, aren't there? People get the daily ones now. It sounds like a commercial. This is not a commercial. But <laughs> and soon. if you are getting daily lenses, why don't you check out? Uh, no, but I just uh, so. So the reality is um, I'm kind of getting sick of my glasses. Hmm. Um, the truth is, Brenda and everybody else that's asking, I don't like the way that they fit on my face when I have headphones on they bother me they push up they've been driving me nuts ever since we started real talk i have a whole bunch of other options back here because as i told you i've had eyewear sponsors in past but they're all old and probably out of style so i got these ones here you know for, for everybody that's watching us on youtube with apologies to the podcast so there's this these is great radio these aren't bad these are fine 
You know, these are pretty good. These ones are kind of neat, but these ones are these are pretty old. You know, you get the flashbacks on Facebook where it's like 10 years ago you were doing these ones are okay. Um, see, the, the nice thing is now I realize that Sarah's actually sitting across the table from me, which I didn't realize. Welcome. <laughs> I didn't oh, hi realize. There. Hi there. Yeah. Someone says, well, how can you see without your glasses? I can't. <laughs> I can't. I am I am looking in the general direction of the camera. Uh, you'll notice Sam will switch off. Like, watch this. So he'll Sam will see I have a paper here, and and if I'm doing an interview, if if I go like this to the paper, then Sam can tell I'm about to read a question. So he'll switch off. Like he might go to the wide shot like this. But if Sam were to switch back, you would know that you'd I'd be caught because I'd be reading the question. And even here, it's not that good. So uh, thank you for your concern. Um, I, I suppose what I'm really probably doing is soliciting for an eyewear sponsor again. That's exactly hey. Once a hustler, always a hustler. Uh, so we're going to be talking a lot <laughs> of hell. At least you're honest about <laughs> it. At least I'm honest. I'm not hiding it. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, so 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 we're going to be talking a lot about healthcare today. We're going to be talking about people's COVID-19 experiences. I have a great, lengthy, explorative email about fighting in hockey, which has become a theme through the week, yeah. which I'm which I'm really actually grateful for because we're getting really thoughtful responses on it and, and some also quick responses some people mm. don't need to put much thought into it they know how they feel about it it's it either needs to be gone right away or it needs to stay forever um i'm in the stay forever camp but i'm but i'm happy to have conversations with with, with folks and kind of get into it um sam where are we looking at? Are, are, we're all lined up ready to rock in just a second okay uh, I, we got, we got gonna, two out of three okay ready. perfect i'm gonna save yeah go ahead no, I just I have a question because I'm very much on the periphery of hockey. Yeah, like I, I kind of get bips and bops of sure of hockey stuff. Basketball is your thing. Yeah. Yeah. If I haven't made that clear yet. <laughs> we love it. We're getting to know you. We like when you make things clear. Um, clarity so, is good. Clarity is good. Um, so Tom Wilson, isn't he yeah. a hockey player? And he from the Washington Capitals. And he. As Man, far as he, I can tell, he like pummeled. Yeah, uh, a guy pummels. by the name a guy by the name of Artemi Panarin, who's a who's a diminutive Russian superstar for the New York Rangers. Yeah, and there was there was a sort of a mix up uh, behind the net, and uh, the Capitals and the Rangers are playing, and and it just so happened, you know, all the players get tied up, you know, and, and sometimes like these, you just grab a guy. That's yeah. kind of how it goes, and sometimes it works out for you, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you realize you've grabbed Zdeno Chara. Who's six foot eleven on skates and two hundred and sixty pounds and just ragdolls people uh, and you go oh boy and then sometimes you wind up with a guy that's like kind of more matched to your size and it's okay and most times all you do is grapple and wrestle and that's kind of what kinda what Tom Wilson did I mean we don't have the, the the highlights here to show but anybody that knows knows that he basically was he was taking liberties uh, with Panarin and he was kind of body slamming him a couple times and Panarin's going to miss some games now he's reportedly injured. Um, and Tom Wilson, the reason why, and there's, so there's a brouhaha last night because yeah. the thing about the schedule now is that all these teams are playing each other back to back to finish the schedule it's before we head into playoffs. Um, and uh, so so last night was just a, an absolute gong show. Because didn't um, Gary Bettman, the, the, the commissioner. Yeah, there, that's his, yeah. like, was like, meh. Well, I mean, it's, you know, I, I mean, these are very deep questions you're asking. I mean, you know, you because mean, well, hockey's in transition in yeah. a lot of things and professional sports is in transition. So, for example, if you want to talk fighting in hockey, you have to talk head injuries. If you talk head injuries, you have to talk science, which leagues are taking it seriously. The NFL, for example, has already settled uh, a multi-billion dollar class action suit about CTE and concussions to try to get ahead of it. Um, I'm probably going to be missing details. You know, what we, we need to do is we'll do a roundtable panel yeah. on this and. 
and and you know if you want to call it violence in sport um the word violence is is used almost sort of facetiously i talked to you yesterday about the brand the hockey brand the lifestyle clothing brand violent gentleman um which which kind of summarizes how you might describe hockey culture how some people might describe hockey, hockey culture, violent gentlemen. Um, others would have, I'm sure, different descriptions of hockey culture, which is totally fine. Um, but, but yeah, so, so, so getting back to this, the NHL director of player safety is George Peros, who's an Ivy League grad and a smart guy. He's also was one of the most formidable fighters of his era. George Peros, especially when he was in Anaheim, uh, was, was like a, I mean, he beat the shit out of guys. Like, that's what he did. Uh, so so a lot of people say, well, look, who's kind of making look the decisions here on player yeah. safety. And then other people say, well, it should be someone that understands mm. the role that physicality, as Brian Burke might say, that truculence plays uh, in pro hockey. So. So, yeah. So last night, actually, but a really interesting story, too. Last night, there was an inspirational side to it. T.J. Oshie of the Washington Capitals just lost his dad. And he's back and he scored a hat trick and it was a very emotional night and wonderful and beautiful. And there's this great picture making the rounds on social media uh, showing TJ Oshie and his dad holding the Stanley Cup. Mm-hmm. And so that's where, where a lot of people are focusing today. Um, let's uh, in just a second, we'll get to our physicians. We wanted to remind you that the team at Local Waste tomorrow will be presenting Trash Talk. This is, uh, well, an opportunity for you to get off your chest, whatever you need to get off your chest. Now, you might imagine we've got a lot of emails about rodeos we've got some emails about lockdown restrictions i'd love to challenge you real talkers right now shoot me an email at some point today to talk at ryanjesperson.com label it trash talk but but take a, a different angle come at something infuse a little humor into it we've been, we've been hearing from some audience members that say you know it's just been pure anger on trash talk lately which you know it's a barometer of where everybody's at it's not necessarily a bad thing but i'm looking for some assertion on the positive side who can meet the challenge find out tomorrow as we wrap up our broadcast with trash talk presented by the team at local waste where integrity is a core value also wanted to remind you that the team at sherwood and st albert dodge are sharing their inventory they've got double what any other dealership does as you look right now for that new rig to pull your trailer this summer that's right it's the season to get outdoors and for a lot of you you're realizing that that suv or maybe that you know that half ton you've been using isn't quite enough to pull that fifth wheel well sherwood and st albert dodge is your one-stop shop the best selection of rams in the province period the three-time motor trend truck of the year plus our friends at the dairy queens of northwest edmonton and sherwood park want to remind you that at their six locations and their six locations only between now and this weekend if you mention jespo or real talk they're going to give you five dollars off your mother's day cake order whether you call ahead to pre-order or whether you walk in and check out the inventory they've got right there mention my name mention real talk they'll give you five dollars off plus starting tomorrow a carnation for everybody that picks up a cake very cool stuff all right this evening uh at uh, 6 p.m mountain 8 p.m 
p.m. Eastern time on Twitter spaces. Physicians, healthcare professionals across Canada will gather to share their perspectives, lessons learned through COVID-19. Dr. Nahid Dosani will be there, a palliative care physician, is one of the hosts. Uh, Dr. Hakeek Farani, a public health specialist out of Edmonton, will be participating on the panel, as will public health physician out of Canada's stunningly beautiful Atlantic region. Dr. Monica, it's a real pleasure to welcome the three of you to Real Talk. Thanks for making time for us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, Dr. Dr. Varani, we'll we'll open with you. Uh, Obviously, when we talk about, you know, perspectives or lessons learned through the course of COVID-19, every single person's answer is going to be different. Every single person could probably talk for 12 hours. Uh, You've been known across Alberta and and I'm going to say across Canada for for your advocacy and your work uh, when it comes to Canada's opioid crisis. Are there parallel storylines here that you're going to be focusing on tonight in front of this audience? Um. Yeah, so there's definitely parallels, and I hope we get a chance to talk about that uh, tonight. Um, there are so many things in common, even though the um, hazard is different. One is infectious, one is chemical, but I think one of the things that we've learned from both of these, A, is that we don't learn lessons very quickly, but B, is that we cannot manage uh, public health emergencies so long as there continue to exist extreme inequities in our populations that are experienced by groups that we exclude. So whether it's um, the elderly in long-term care, whether it's people who are living in poverty, people in dense housing, people with no housing at all, or people who use drugs, there are populations of folks that we don't consider as valuable as others. And so long as that's a foundational problem in our society, a structural problem in our society, we will fail every time we have a public health emergency. And I think that's a real uh, learning that we should take home from both of these um, emergencies. There's some things that are different though. Um, And uh, one of them is that we have daily pressers for COVID, um, but we rarely have a press conference on the overdose crisis. And here in Alberta and in many provinces in uh, Canada, There are days that we go with more people dying from overdose than COVID. This is not to compare the two. They're both catastrophes. But it does speak to the problem of inequity and how some people count more than um, than others. I think the other thing that's parallel is that the effects of these public health emergencies on individuals, families, economies, communities are longstanding. When we're past COVID, we're still going to feel COVID. And that's not just because some people have long COVID. It's because... The effects of these public health catastrophes go on and on forever. I just read, you know, coming up on Mother's Day, just read a really moving piece from um, uh, from a woman named Tara McGuire about her son Holden, who died from uh, overdose years ago. And her father, unfortunately, also passed away from COVID recently. And she, there's a sentence in her, um, uh, in her piece that says, uh, I don't pay as much in income tax as I used to when Holden was alive. I think it speaks to how much this trauma of going through public health catastrophes and losing people to preventable causes of death um, hurts us as a society. And those are some parallels off the top of my head. Dr. Nutt, you're, you're joining us from uh, Sydney, uh, Nova Scotia right now. And, and, I, and I know that Canadians, I mean, I mean, you know, sure, Alberta, Ontario are, are, are leading some of the headlines. But Nova Scotia, in a bit of a different sense uh, with with regards to what strikes me as somebody on the other end of the country, as, as 
buy-in. Uh, I think it was 96 new cases a week or so ago seemed to really ring alarm bells that resonated across your entire province that essentially goes into a meaningful lockdown. Sure, there have been some challenges about vaccine distribution, et cetera, but, but is Nova Scotia uh, an outlier or, or, or a unique jurisdiction uh, with regards to your perspective on how you've seen your home province manage these past 14 months or so? Yeah, so I, I have a mix of perspectives in Nova Scotia. I'm, I'm a community member and I am kind of trying to participate as well as I can and follow the news. I also work in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador in public health. I'm not speaking in, in that capacity. So I have a, um, in some sense, kind of both working inside and, and outside of, of different systems, which I think brings a, an interesting perspective. I really think every jurisdiction in Canada has had, you know, a whole range of different factors that have contributed to, you know, what has happened in those areas and those provinces and territories um, and has influenced the, the decisions. So I won't say there's not anything unique about, you know, Atlantic Canada or Atlantic provinces in terms of how um, some actions might have been taken and, and how, you know, some outcomes might have happened. But even right now in Nova Scotia, we are facing a, a significant outbreak. Um, and again, I'm, I'm watching this as a community member and knowing that, you know, just recently we had something similar in Newfoundland and Labrador. And even with, you know, the, the strictest of you know, border, uh, border measures, which you can argue, you know, they, they work in a lot of ways. They also cause a, a lot of harm in a lot of ways, um, but they have been helpful. Um, were people adhering any more or any less to precautions? You know, we don't have that data to say that, perhaps to, to some extent. I think geography pays, plays a role. Um, the fact that we don't have some of, say, the, at least in some places, some of the, you know, living conditions and um, working conditions that may contribute in other places. I think like was just said, those inequities, they're across the country, Atlantic Canada, downtown Toronto, everywhere. Um, I think they've played together in different ways in the pandemic, but at the same time with, you know, variants and, and other, other um, aspects of the pandemic now, I think, you know, different provinces are seeing that, pressure and we're all trying to to deal with that hmm. yeah, some random guy that's the handle not what i'm calling him on our live chat says you know i worry about uh or rather there's going to be a, a lot of uh, collective cultural trauma from covid and our kids may be asking us why we still get anxious in crowds or why we keep sanitizing our hands. Uh, Scott says, I'm sure that the way that the Great Depression impacted the mentality of people after the 1930s, um, COVID may do the same for all of us going forward. That's an interesting one. You know, the, the Great Depression in the 1930s, I've, I've seen a lot of people talking about how uh, the Spanish flu in 1918 led to the roaring 20s. So I don't, I don't know which one to take. Uh, Dr. Desani, you, you are, uh, people talk about physicians and bedside manner. I think, uh, you know, answering a calling as a palliative care physician has got to be one of the biggest. I guess what I'm saying is you have to find a way to ride an emotional roller coaster or insulate yourself from that type of experience. Has COVID been even more taxing on a professional like you? I think it's been taxing for palliative care health workers, but I think it's been taxing for all health workers uh, across the country. Um, people are thinking about their mortality and death um, in, in really unique ways that 
COVID has put at the forefront. Um, people are working overtime, double shifts, taking on leadership opportunities. We've seen immense um, grief that health workers have had to experience. We have lost so many um, of our colleagues, um, nurses, PSWs who have gotten sick and, and, and even died. And you know, on my Twitter page, I've tried where possible in Ontario to, to memorialize those that we have lost um, along the journey. But I think the trauma and the grief that we're gonna be dealing with um, runs along other parallels as well. I think um, at the beginning, a lot of our political leaders said we were all in this together. And I think at this point, I, I think that's a really uh, false statement. We were not all in this together. We have seen inequities um, that existed before COVID get exacerbated. They're much worse now. Um, and we're seeing that on, you know, on racism um, and how racialized communities were particularly impacted. We've seen how people experiencing homelessness have been impacted by COVID-19 rates uh, 20 times more likely to be hospitalized, 10 times more likely to be in ICU, five times more likely to die from COVID-19. And, and we've seen this also on our essential workers um, who um, have continued to work in production plants and factories. And in Ontario, a significant proportion of infections continue to happen in these settings. And what we've seen a lot of the time, what we'll be talking about tonight, is how politics were played with people's lives. And in Ontario, we saw an inequitable vaccine rollout. We saw um, a lack of attention to essential workers. We called for 10 days of paid sick leave. We got three. Um, and we saw basically a government response that was not compassionate and considering the needs of people. We'll be talking about you know, how we move forward around compassion, but also why we've seen different responses in different provinces across the country. Why is it that we have the science, we have the evidence, but we have saw a different response in Ontario versus Alberta, versus Nova Scotia, and, and should it really be that way? These are questions that really linger for me as, as I reflect and think about all this. Me too. Uh, I, I And I'd be curious to know how where all three of you land on this. I, I was talking to a, a buddy the other day over text, and he's a really smart guy. He's a political strategist. Um, you know, he's successful most times when he commits to a campaign. And and he said to me, you know, one of the things that people seem to forget, for example, talking about Alberta and, and, and the fact that cases are sky high in comparison to the rest of Canada, we're still there, there's 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 loud protest, any sort of uh, sort of uh, quasi lockdown. And, and he said people need to remember that Alberta is full of Albertans. And I kind of thought, well, what's that supposed to mean? You know, is it like, you know, there's sort of like this freedom type thing. And, and, and there is that kind of cowboy mentality to a certain part of the province. But like, does that mean that we ignore science on pandemics or on respiratory diseases? Or I, I've been having a really hard time wrapping my mind around that, Dr. DeSanti. And I, and I don't actually have an answer. I'm kind of just exploring the idea with the three of you right here. How are you wrapping your mind around it? Well, I mean, it's actually um, really unfortunate that so much of this pandemic has been dependent on the political decisions of our leaders. In Ontario, we saw a humani humanitarian catastrophe happen in long-term care. And on Friday night, we saw the Long-Term Care C Commission report come in, and it basically showed that no lessons were learned from the first wave to the second wave. There was no accountability on inspections and infection control. And um, and when the province had the opportunity to bring workers workers together and actually hire them to support them around decent wages, benefits, and paid sick leave. They chose not to, despite the evidence, despite the research. On Friday, April 16th, when cases were skyrocketing, we were talking about field hospitals, ICUs being full, 
the government of Ontario came out with a response that didn't didn't support helping people, didn't support any interventions that would really help essential workers or racialized people who are getting hit by COVID-19 variants. They announced more policing and enforcement and shutting down outdoor activities and bringing carding back, um, which actually has no evidence and no research to support pandemics as well. Too much of this pandemic response, at least from an Ontario perspective, because that's where I am and focus a lot of my time, has been ideological. It has been politically driven and people have gotten sick and died as a result. People may not realize that actually when they identified hotspots in Ontario, um, the definition of hotspot was not very clear to begin with. And there were communities and areas in Ontario that had low rates of COVID, but were the first to get vaccines, while areas like Scarborough and Peel, which had high rates of COVID-19, didn't get their supply of vaccines. People got sick and died as a result. We will not forget this, and we will be discussing some of that tonight as well. So, Dr. Dutt, I mean, the title of the of the event tonight, COVID-19 Perspectives Across Canada, Lessons Learned, that implies typically when somebody in life says regardless of context lesson learned that they're going to change their behavior or that it's not going to happen again or or, or that something will be amended or adjusted Uh, do you believe that that will be the case in canada and if so where would you like to see it or where do you think it'll be be honest i i don't feel that i can speak with for all of canada i do feel this is it's both lessons learned and just a never-ending lesson because i think there's there's constant learning throughout this i think what needs to be embedded even more than it ever was before, which, you know, to be honest, hasn't been all that embedded in our, in our, often our, our policies is how do we address the inequities that exist that have made this pandemic the way that it is and affect the the people who have been affected most. Um, I guess in some ways it's a lesson at the same time, people who are experiencing those disparities for, for many, it's not a lesson. It was very well known. People have been talking about this for years and decades. Workers have been, you know, advocating for decent work conditions and paid sick days. And so, you know, to say it's a lesson, I think it's a bit in some ways disingenuous because it's not a new lesson it's maybe a lesson for some but not for for many and so as someone again i i kind of work in in different capacities and different roles so i think it means both embedding it in kind of our in both public health work and i think again public health is much more than just the outbreak piece it's a significant part of our work but i think day-to-day public health is also very involved in some of these policy aspects but i think really crucial is the work of of communities and community leaders and organizations and people who are also um, speaking to, to these issues that they experience and talking about solutions that that they are are leading and we really need to be able to, to integrate those those two better and and I hope that that does happen and I think some changes are happening but I, I really think that needs to be um, much stronger going forward. Dr. Verani, it, it's uh, I think it's probably safe to say that that pre pandemic, the majority of Canadians wouldn't have been 100 percent familiar with with the, you know, the role of a chief medical officer of health or what a public health doctor might do. Um, and, and I know I'm anticipating at least that that's going to be part of your conversation tonight at, the, at this online event, talking about what chief medical officers of health might have done differently uh, in certain scenarios. You used to be a medical officer of health. So what what goes through your mind? Uh, first of all, as you're observing uh, people calling out chief medical officers of health, demanding that they do more, demanding that they stand uh, defiantly in the face, courageously in the face of political decision makers, that they plant their flag or resign. I mean, you've seen it all. We've heard it all. 
uh, in different jurisdictions across Canada. Uh, we saw a lot of of, of fury, um, uh, partisan fury, I think, uh, leveraged to Dr. Anthony Fauci in the United States. We've seen examples around the world. Um, what goes through your head as, as a public health doctor when, when a public health emergency hits? And what observations have you made in this context uh, over this last year or so? Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, this is a lesson of previous public health catastrophes, um, SARS being one where we had several commissions after SARS um, that all uh, individually and independently pointed out that the lack of public health independence in the organization of public health authorities underneath governments is a significant problem when we have public health um, emergencies that require an emergent response to save lives. Um, and it, there are some commissions that have gone so far in Ontario, um, Justice Campbell, after SARS, uh, said that during public health emergencies, the powers of the Minister of Health as it relates to managing public health problems need to be removed from the minister and placed in the hands of the chief medical officer of health. I realize that that will be made to be scary by certain flavors of politicians, but if it's not done, the catastrophe that we've seen is how things roll out. And your question was, what do I think of um, in a public health mind? Where does my head go when we, when we um, are faced with a public health emergency? And there is a temptation when you've kind of been hostage inside governments to think like a politician because ostensibly that's who your bosses are. But truly, you're, you're a doctor and your bosses are people, patients. Um, so you think basically like any other doctor and where your head goes is save lives. Um, that's what we take an oath to do. That's the special obligation that we have to the communities we live in. Um, and, you know, when you go through your training, you recognize that it's euphoric uh, to save a life. There, but it's traumatic when you when you fail to. Um, and it's especially traumatic because, you know, you're about to break the news to somebody who's even far more traumatized than you are. I think that one thing that every doctor remembers um, is the first time they had to tell a family uh, that that you weren't able to save a life with their loved one. And one of the, um, you know, I think turning points or moving um, visuals of this pandemic in Alberta, at least, was you remember the ICU doctor yeah. on his knees in the ICU with his hand in his head, um, calling a family to let them know that we failed. And as a public health doctor, I think that's where our head should go, is that, um, you know, when we were coached to have that conversation, we were told two things. Say you're sorry and tell them that you did everything that you could. Uh, but in my mind, you only say those things if they're true. You only apologize if you are sorry. And you only say I did everything I could if you did. Um, and I, I think that that's where our head should go is chief medical officers of health. Do everything you can. So that those preventable deaths in a developed country like ours that should never happen um, don't happen. And our aspirations should therefore be eliminate this hazard. And even if we still will have sporadic cases, do not let these things overwhelm a system, grind it to a halt. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think that, you know, that's the reason when we're going, we're on 15 months, people are tired. And so they're going to look for people to blame. And it's only natural for folks to look to our public health leaders um, and think of things that they ought to have done differently. 
I know it's going to be a thoughtful uh, and revealing and challenging conversation tonight. It'll be moderated uh, by Dr. Nahid Dosani uh, alongside uh, Leanne Trevers, Dr. Uh, Gabriel Stephen and uh, Sabina Vora Miller and our panelists, of course, two of them joining us. We really appreciate it. Dr. Monica Dutt, Dr. Hakeek Varani taking time out of their day alongside Dr. Andrew Morris and Dr. Amy Tan, who's been on Real Talk before a friend of the show uh, out of British Columbia. Uh, you can check it out on Twitter. I've pushed it out uh, by my account. Of course, you can follow these three as well. Thank you so much for this. Not not just for the interview, not just for the insight, not just for the availability, but for the every single step you've taken, the sacrifices you've made, um, the challenges that I imagine you're keeping internalized right now, like every single other human being walking planet Earth. Thank you, doctors. Very much. That's tonight. COVID-19 perspectives across Canada. Lessons learned. Uh, 5 p.m. Pacific. 8 p.m. Eastern on Twitter spaces. Uh, you can follow HC in Canada on Twitter. That's hot healthcare in Canada uh, to find them and to find out more about the event. That's good stuff. Did you did you track down this photo? Do you remember the first time you saw this photo, Sarah? This is for the benefit of people that are checking us out uh, on YouTube that are watching. This is the uh, ICU doctor that they were referencing. This is unbelievable. I don't. I don't actually remember because I've I've seen it so many times that yeah. it's. Um, which is really sad. I remember the first time I saw it, I felt like I just stared. Mm. I was just staring at it. And you're, uh, you know, as you look at it here, you see, like, you're noticing the little things. The fact the doctor is on his knees yeah. as he's calling a family to say they lost the patient. The fact that his head is buried in his hand. The Just the exhaustion. The, the I mean, you can just see, the, look at the look at the bins in the back. The recycling. Everything's pi- like, yeah, piling up. It's just everything. There's so many metaphors in that photo. Just an unbelievable capture. Is there a photo caption on that? I always love to shout out whoever it is that grabbed it. I think it was, it was a former... Um, uh, photographer, I think that I worked, if I remember correctly, I'm racking my brain trying to remember who it was, but it's we'll give him credit. Saying, but it uh, it was Alberta Health Services. Alberta Health that Services actually yeah. tweeted it out originally. Yeah, that's right. It was a it was a it was a, a photojournalist commissioned by working by Alberta Health Services. I'm sure that somebody's going to nail that for us and let us know. We'll yeah. give him a shout out when we can. I will um, uh, retweet it right now. Yeah, that'll be great. So people can check out my Twitter um, if they're listening to this later. Uh, Linda Ray says it's so good to listen to experts who appreciate. Or Linda Ray, maybe we'll say who accept the premise of the questions. Um, others are saying awesome panel. That was great. Some random guy says, yeah, looking at that. I never really noticed the doctor was on his knees in that photo. I had never ordinary really day. That. Really? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That was like that was first for me is like you just pointed that. I was like, I didn't realize he was on his knees. I've seen that photo so many. times. Yeah. And it says so much more. Right. When you're on your knee. I mean, just it just implies so much more. It says so much more about maybe where your state is at or the fact you need to take a knee as we say or maybe the exhaustion or maybe just the i mean how do you wrap i think about this with police officers as well uh going to knock on the door to inform someone that there's been a horrific accident or that something's happened and they're not expecting you knocking on their door mm-hmm. right like out of nowhere you knock on your you know you you're, someone knocks on your door and you look and you see that it's a police officer right away you're kind of like uh, you know what i mean yeah um, like what's up kind of thing you open it and then all of a sudden are you this person yes yeah there's been an accident like i just can't imagine what police officers carry with them on on some of those notifications they've they've had to give i just i i guess you know what i just bring these up not to discourage people i bring it up so we can tell people we appreciate them Mm. so we can reflect on things like just walk through life and you know what i mean i mean like not everybody's always happy to see cops 
people I don't know how this is turning into a conversation of policing as opposed to healthcare, but it's a reality and everybody's been dealing with I mean paramedics also hey, paramedics 100 percent I mean so many people yeah right I mean anytime you're even going to talk about first responders and safety uh, people are going to write in and as they should and say why does no one mention tow truck drivers tow truck drivers have like one of the most dangerous jobs in the world 100 percent right we don't think of like what about letter carriers what about the people that have been oh, working yeah. at FedEx and UPS and in, in, in the Amazon delivery warehouses and now someone's going to call me the enemy of small business which is a great segue to mention that the federal minister of small business is joining us in about 21 minutes time. Um, you but, are a but pro. people have just been running and serving and giving and sacrificing through the course of this mm-hmm. pandemic. Um, but you know, it's just, uh, I don't know. I, I just wanted to say I, to wrap up that thought, not everybody's always happy to see the police. I get it. And in many cases for very good reason. Yeah. Um, you know, there are problems with with, uh, you know, institutional racism and systemic racism and, and all these types of things and carding. And we have these meaningful conversations. We're not afraid of them. Um, at the same time, um, you know, we can be grateful that people show up in law enforcement every single day to maintain some semblance of, of safety and, and do the important job that they do. And um, it's always interesting for me as a dad. I'm a father of a five year old. and it's, it's very different. Like when a kid sees a police officer, right? It's very different. It's, it's the like, hey. Same then, with the garbage right? man. And then the cops are like whoop whoop and like light the light the SUV up and you know the kid gets so excited and all this and I brought this up on the show a few weeks ago and we got some really thoughtful emails and comments from people that are like boy when they drive through my neighborhood it's a bit of a different reality on both sides of the equation right mm-hmm. yeah stuff to think about we try to walk miles and miles in so many pairs of shoes every week here on Real Talk and we promise you we're going to keep doing that I wanted to remind you that the team at Eden Landscaping this is the time of year they, they've been chomping at the bit for the last couple of months they've been meeting with their clients on Zoom they've been taking a look at, at your photos and your Pinterest boards and all the Instagram posts that you've been saving and Mike and his team have been using that to come up with plans the blueprints if you will for dream spaces outdoors if you've been spending all winter staring into your yard you know now's the time for a new deck maybe or an entertaining space or what about flower beds or a fire table these fire tables are amazing but don't what get about, me started on fi- fire oh tables. buddy fire tables are the new They're fire so pits cool. yeah. veggie garden boxes shrubbery eden landscaping is the go-to from start to finish making your dream a reality you can check them out online at landscapeedmonton.ca our friends at friesen brothers want to remind you that they have these amazing mother's day picnic boxes available for the first time this is the first time they're ever doing them check these out i mean this is like charcuterie times 10 does that even make sense i was trying to come up with how do you say charcuterie times 10 off say, but i can't remember how you say times how do you say times uh, Anybody remember how you say times? Yeah. I know that our Francophone audience members will just right now be going, oh my goodness. Oh, it's been a while. <laughs> this is how you really ramp up your Mother's Day celebration. Here's the deal, though. They're only doing it out of their Edmonton, Fort Saskatchewan, and Stony Plain stores. You can order them in advance. Ahead of time, they'll be made up specially for you to hit on the priority items, the ones that mom's really going to love. Limited quantities available, so you've got to make sure you book as early as possible. The booking closes tomorrow morning. 
for pickup on Sunday at the Friesen Brothers stores in Edmonton, Fort Saskatchewan, and Stony Plain. We're also very excited here at Real Talk to be the title sponsor of the Global Visions film series at this year's Northwest Fest International Documentary Festival. As mentioned earlier, it's not happening in theaters, so to speak, but the show is going on. They've got an outstanding lineup that you can check out, all available online and on demand. 40 feature films, 40 short films. Anybody can catch them starting today, May 6th, all the way through to May 16th. It's the only festival in Alberta where you're going to see docs like Final Nation. Before we check in with the filmmakers, let's take a look. This is an expert excerpt. It's an expert excerpt from Vinyl Nation. Vinyl can really help you with parenting in that being able to talk about music, hear music, and tell a story about an album or a period of time. It gives you really nice envotes. And I think when you're physically connecting, when you're touching something, it forges more connection for you because you pause and you're talking to each other and you're listening to each other in a different way. Sunday vinyl is a family tradition. So I get up in the morning and I play whatever the week has been. And then at dinner time, I play a few records that are gonna take us into our next week. If it's a, a blues record, folk music, or a jazz record, I'm giving something to them. We have this day together and we have this time together and it's our version of church. There you have it from Vinyl Nation, screening on demand at Northwest Fest. We're thrilled to have Kevin Smoker, yep. Christopher Boone, the filmmakers behind this doc, joining us live. Welcome to the show, fellas. This is uh, oh, uh, thanks for having uh, us. <laughs> I watched like forty-five seconds of it, and my face is just <laughs> smiling so big it hurts already. People have such there, there's something. I mean, people connect to music, but then people connect to this format to vinyl, unlike mm-hmm. anything else. How come? Uh, This is Kevin. Um, We like to say that a vinyl record activates four of the five human senses. Uh, You can see it, you can hear it, you can smell it, and you can, uh, and you can, Chris, what am I missing? Touch it. Uh, You can taste it if you want, but we'd recommend you don't. Um, (laughs) It's, uh, it is a more complete immersive way of having a relationship with music. Uh, And of course we can talk about cover art and we can talk about how much fun it is to go to record stores. Um, But I, I know we only have a limited amount amount of time so but the benefits of vinyl could keep us here all afternoon well i'm going to tell you fellas the, the show kind of like goes however we want it to go and that includes the <laughs> the guests i mean you, you guys are filmmakers let me just say you can direct this as much as you like so 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 feel free to explore different thoughts uh christopher have you always been and there's almost like a i, I don't think you say it's a cult following because it's a little bit more mainstream than cult but i think back to like john cusack and high fidelity and there's a whole culture around it have you have you been part of this or did you dive in when you started making the film no, I, I think I got back into records probably around 2014. My wife and I got our first turntable, but Kevin was the one who had the initial idea and brought it to me because he's a writer and I'm a filmmaker and we know each other way back from college days. Um, but I was really interested in this because my daughter 
got her first turntable when she was 13 and she never owned music in any sort of physical format until she got a turntable. You know, she went straight from iTunes and Spotify to records. And I was just fascinated to learn more about this younger generation that's getting into records. You know, why is that? Um, and people like myself and my wife who, you know, wouldn't really think of ourselves as record people because we were just a little too young, like the first time around. And yet I realized I was getting disconnected with with music uh, when I listened to it through streaming. So records is a way to reconnect with that. And just realizing there were a lot of people like myself out there that were getting back into records. So Kevin and I really just want to explore like who who are all these different people that are coming back to records or have discovered them for the first time or have been into records ever since, you know, they were young people. Okay, so I, I got to show you guys this and, and, and with apologies to everybody that's listening to the podcast and not watching us live on YouTube. But but check out this photo. This is from Yuri. He tweets at Enigma Machine, the producer of this show, Sarah Hoyles, asked, what's your favorite record? What's your what's your favorite you know piece of your vinyl collection leading into? And he goes, just one. I'm out. And then and he's just it, this is a flex. If I've ever seen a flex, this is a flex. I mean, when it comes to vinyl, there, there's just something about it. I love that you invoked digital music and streaming music because while we see a resurgence in vinyl, Kevin, it is amid some of the most impressive technology we've ever seen that really, in theory, would negate the need for vinyl. So there's got to be something more to it. What is it? What did you find out in making the film? Isn't that crazy that vinyl comes along at the exact same time, the vinyl resurgence comes along at the exact same time streaming comes along? And we make a point in the movie Vinyl Nation that streaming and vinyl work really well together. Uh, Chris and I like to say that streaming is just uh, streaming is just a, a taste of the drug before you commit to buying the whole kilo and the whole kilo is vinyl. <laughs> and um, you, get, you get to audition things and try things out uh, on streaming for $9.99 a month. And then you can determine if you want to go whole hog with any of those and buy them on vinyl. Uh, thanks to the comeback of vinyl, vinyl ain't cheap anymore. I mean, it is if you want to buy something used or you're really into like 80s schlocky Canadian prog rock like I am. But if you want to get, if you want to buy a brand new piece of vinyl, it's, it's you know, 20, 30, 40 bucks. And if you want to do that several times a week, like most of us do, streaming is a good way to make sure that you don't, uh, you don't go bankrupt pursuing this wonderful hobby. So this is, uh, yeah, I mean, that's it's, it's kind of funny because I've had friends that, are, you know, we say music snobs, but we say it out of love. It's, it's actually something you aspire to be, I think. Um, but one of the things I was talking to a buddy a while ago, he's super choked because now with streaming and, and you can just sign up for like Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. And he's choked because he used to be so proud of his collection. Like he had albums that nobody else had. And there is still an element to that, of course. But, but he, he doesn't like that everybody can just go to browse or suggested playlists. He used to be the guy that would burn us the CD once a year. He was the guy that introduced us to all the bands. He was the guy that knew about everybody before everybody else knew about them. Right. Does vinyl uh, Christopher, does it does it preserve that space, that play space for the music snobs? What did you learn about the people you talked to when you put the film together? I mean, we really learned that vinyl records are for everyone. But I mean, if you're really into your records, there's some music that's only available on vinyl records. Like, so those collectors may have the only addition, uh, the only way you can hear that music, because that was the only way it was ever put out. It was never put out on cassette. It was never put out on CD. And it, 
definitely isn't on streaming right now. So to think that, I think there's this fallacy that we believe everything is available on demand because everything we think is streaming. And that's just not true. It's really just a fraction of the music that's ever been produced that is actually available on streaming. We've just been led to believe that it's all out there. Um, and so those people who are just hardcore collectors, there's definitely still space for them. Like in, in Vinyl Nation, we visit the Austin Record Collection and um, it is just this this huge, massive record show in Austin, the, the biggest one in the Americas. And you get people from all over the world that travel to it to just to look for records. But what's really cool about it is over the past few years is it used to be just be like real hardcore record collectors that went there. But now it is everybody. It's it's young, it's old, it's it's every race, it's every gender, it's parents with their kids. And pretty much any record you're looking for you're probably going to find it there if it's really rare or if it's brand new and you can get into a ton of really excellent conversations with people to learn about music you've just never discovered yet. I've got a text here from Brinley that says uh, these guys are buying kilos at a time when they, they party with these two kilos. Uh, well, thank you, Brinley. We appreciate we appreciate you thinking we're way cooler than we actually are. That's right. Um, yeah, I think it's like pretty much it's cartels dealing in kilos. But hey, yeah. who can blame an enthusiastic reveler, especially after being locked up in isolation for the last 14 months? Right. So what did you so uh, when you're, you're putting this film together, Kevin, like who who did you? First of all, you line these people up. I love that clip that you provided to us. It's absolutely beautiful. You know what I even loved is like, what do you call the dust thing? Like she's like, she's like clean, you know, getting the dust off the ground. I mean, there's just such a, there's such a stewardship to it. There's such a care yeah. of it. You don't see people like with finding how people with CDs, you sort of like in passenger seat of the car, you just, you know, you're just kind of throwing them around. <laughs> they're banging. They're up in the, they're up in the, the visor, the sun visor jammed in there. You did that to somebody's record. Like, are you kidding me? Like, so what did you learn about who's collecting? vinyl and what's i would imagine you meet people of all ages all, all, all backgrounds socioeconomic and otherwise we certainly did and when chris and i started talking about doing vinyl nation together we were like okay if records have experienced a renaissance it probably means that more and different kind of people are interested in records than we once thought and listen, if it's just the two of us and we're going to be making a movie about 40 people who look like the two of us and sound like the two of us, that's going to be really boring and we don't have uh, much of a story there. So in our initial exploration, we were like, okay, let us find every possible different kind of person, uh, race, gen we like to say race, gender, creed, hometown, and musical taste that would be interested in, that would be interested in records. And let's hear their stories because we really backed ourselves into a corner choosing a pretentious title like Vinyl Nation. <laughs> nation. And a nation is a big, diverse thing. Uh, we hope we accomplish that in the movie. We'll leave that for the audience of Northwest Fest to determine. I know people are going to be excited about it. I, I, I love that you invoke the word nation. Um, I used to refer to my former radio audience as that. And I can tell you it's comprised of of a bunch of different people. I think both our guests are frozen right now. I, I may just be speaking into the void. I don't know. We're hanging out with Kevin Smokler and Christopher Boone, the filmmakers behind Vinyl Nation. Sam's working to get him back. Uh, I want to remind you that these start streaming these films, 40 feature films, 40 short films, some of them world premieres today at northwestfest.ca. Uh, that's where you can, of course, sign up. You can learn more about the films. You can look into them, uh, choose the ones you want to watch. Some very cool, very cool opportunities here. Um, Sarah Hoyles, you were putting this together, and I, and I kind of felt like we had a, a, an option. We had a number of different options of uh, films that we could have selected to feature, of uh, filmmakers that we could talk to. 
um, you seem to gravitate a little bit toward Vinyl Nation. Is is, is there something personal going on here with you two? <laughs> oh, well, I, I love music. And I think that whole idea of the, the tactile, like how the tangible actual touching of vinyl is really, really something. Um, I think it's also being able to support musicians and being able to, uh, you know, have them buy buy their merch, but buy their music. Um, I mean, streaming, yes, is one thing. I, I loved that reference to the idea that they could. It's kind of the streaming is the the gateway drug to to vinyl. So to me, that was like, oh, I, I so relate. And I love being able to support local acts by buying their merch, but buying their vinyl. Yeah, um, we're, we're on a bit of an adventure right now that I'm just going to note. So Sam's yeah. working behind the scenes, but we're not actually even sure if anybody can hear us right now. Uh, we appear to be a we appear to be bumped off YouTube. Um, we, perhaps we're still streaming on the Mixler audio app. And those that are hearing us later are going to are going to, I think, catch the podcast without interruption. Uh, but we may have just bumped off our entire audience off YouTube. I'm not quite sure yet what's going on. So uh, we'll continue hanging out. What's going on? I, Sam? I am working on it, guys. Uh, okay. Truth be told, I'm, I'm not wholly sure what's going okay, on yeah this is one of those um, things. we are still live on mixler and we are still recording the podcast okay tell you that but, cool uh, well yeah. people will catch the podcast and, yep. and, and we may have uh you know uh, said goodbye to our youtube oh our youtube audience this morning so we'll see this is obviously an unusual occurrence for us but we'll keep going do you have like when, when it comes to collecting vinyl yeah um do you have like you asked a question to people yesterday that yuri was Yuri was one of the collectors yeah. that pushed back. He was like, I'm sorry, you're going to ask me to choose just one record? I'm out. How about you? Is there one that you're like, yep, that's it? Well, someone actually tweeted about it, and I was like, right, that one is so good. It's called Nuggets, and uh, it is a compilation, actually, and it's about, like, it's it's just all these rare, rare cuts, and oh, my goodness, it's so good. Um a former partner of mine, he had this amazing record collection and he introduced me to it. And I was yeah. just like, my eyes just like popped out of my head. I don't mean to ask too personal of a question, but yep. but when, when when you're in a partner relationship yep. and there's a vinyl collection at play. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's like, I mean, it was, uh, I mean, I mean, assuming the partnership doesn't work out. That's what I'm saying. That, yeah, oh, and you know, I because then do, it's like then then are you drawing straws? So are you? Do you pick, like? Yeah, like who it, gets to keep what? I mean, it was very clear what, and he, like <laughs> he knew exactly which ones were his, and I knew exactly which ones were mine. So it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> it was pretty clear the lines. The lines were drawn. It was amicable, so yeah. we were able to be like, "This is yours. You can have it." Yeah. Um, but I do. He still has that Nuggets uh, record, and I miss it. Um, I'm sorry to take you there. I took you to place. I can see your eyes. You have this like wistful. Oh, come off it. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to a young uh, a, a, a young fella in my life. I don't want to identify him too closely, but he's in his teenage years, and uh, a relationship didn't work out. And I was talking to him about that, you know, and just kind of life and what happens and. Uh, and I was like, what, what bothers you most about it? Like, what's bothering you most about the relationship not working out? And he's like, well, she still has my favorite hoodie. And I was like, oh, yeah. That's uh, always hard. That's, that's a, she might be keeping that one. You Sometimes know? you just gotta, you know, let it go. You got, you just have to just, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get that back. Yeah. Not going to get it back. Um, 
I don't know what's going on right now. Unfortunately, it's never happened to us before in the five-month history of the show. Uh, so I, I can report right now we are back live on YouTube. Took a little okay. bit of wrangling to get that back up. Our guests are ready to keep going. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of where okay. we're at right now. Well, great. Yep. So we're back. Good stuff. Uh, ish, in a way. Um, <laughs> fellas, uh, I don't know what the hell. Um, <laughs> we've done 110 episodes of the show, and this has not happened before, so my apologies for this, but we're, we're going to make sure that this interview is blasted out all over the place, and, and, and we'll make it up to you, but we know our audience will slowly come back, I think, uh, to us on YouTube. Uh, th this is me. What happens, I just start running my mouth when internally my brain is going, what the fuck is going on right now? Uh, we're hanging out with Kevin Smokler and Christopher Boone, uh, Boone the, the filmmakers behind Vinyl Nation. So, so ultimately, Al out of this i mean i think the, the resurgence of vinyls is i think it's it's amazing culturally um what impact do you see it having on the business of music i mean, I mean who, ha who has the biggest opportunities here i would imagine you could approach this from a number of different angles well I, honestly um you know independent labels and, and indie artists have been pressing vinyl even during like the low point uh, of vinyl so they're actually really they along with djs really deserve the credit for keeping vinyl records alive and keeping enough pressing plants around so that when the resurgence started to happen there was at least still the opportunity to press vinyl um but the major labels were the ones that really jumped in when record stores realized they were struggling and they needed something special to stay alive and record store day essentially was launched in, in 2008 and and the major labels are the ones that kind of really kind of push everything into high gear. I mean, who stands to benefit? Honestly, everyone. And um, we actually went to about, we went to four different pressing plants in our film because they each have their own stories because there are opportunities to be had uh, in, in making records. Because once the resurgence happened, there weren't enough pressing plants around to actually meet the demand. And there were too many bottlenecks in the process. So we went to Gold Rush Vinyl in Austin, Texas, which was launched by an entrepreneur, um, Karen Kelleher, who worked both at Google in their music division, but also was a manager for bands and just realized there was an opportunity there and um, and got financing for it from her local bank. And now again, runs a, a pressing plant. We also went to third man pressing, Jack White's gorgeous uh, plant in, in Detroit um, because he's very particular about everything vinyl and realized, you know, he wanted to have even more control over it. But again, there was yet an opportunity there. And in addition to pressing all of his records, they support a lot of local artists as well, especially a lot of Detroit bands, you know, where he grew up. And I think it's really important that these pressing plants have come back online because it is giving opportunities to, you know, that band that just wants to press a seven inch. So you can buy it at the merch table the next time they get to play a gig when we are able to play live events again. Oh, um, you yeah. know, but in the meantime, you know, you can hopefully pick up their albums on, you know, Bandcamp after they've been able to get through that that backlog of all those those uh, major label releases. So I think there are are opportunities really across the board for all different types of artists and all different types of businesses. I, I'm curious to see how people like how consumers are, are going to see their their habits um, evolve. I mean, I'm a classic example. OK, so I've got, you know, my parents like way back in the day gave me some of the classic records. So I've got all these, you know, they're, they're, I've got, you know, stuff from like Elvis all the way through to Boston and Kenny Rogers, and like all these random, but they're legit old. They're awesome. Um, and then a whole bunch of new ones, cool ones, like, like uh, the, you know, a special press from The weekend, or, or like I've got the Gord Downey record that I really love or, or, you know, some Tom Petty. Anyway, whatever. I'm, I'm, now I just want to talk about bands I love. Um, 
<laughs> so I picked up this record player that's it's it's really not great. It, it's one of those ones that you just like plug and play and and it, it like, you know, it has a little crappy speaker on the side. And it, it actually I'm so embarrassed. It has a USB port. I can actually plug my iPhone. It's not like a real record player. You know what I mean? Meantime, my neighbor Chad has like half of the main floor of his house is set up like he says to me. I, I shouldn't even say this, but I said to Chad, I was like, can you give me like a ballpark on like what putting a room together? He goes, well, he goes, well, I'll give you an idea. He says there's about four thousand dollars worth of cable. And I went, OK, like <laughs> what? I mean, you know what I mean? And so but then I'm thinking the next time that I purchase a whole new stereo system, which is in someone's life, like once every 20 to 25 years, there's no doubt I'll invest in a turntable. There's no doubt because I've got the collection I'm building, right? I mean, this is just one example of how I think the resurgence and probably docks like yours are going to, I think, spur people on to where this could be a curve over the next whatever, 10 to 20 to whenever years, right? Absolutely. I mean, vinyl is on its, uh, what, Surge started in 2008, Chris, so doing the math because you're better at this than me, that's, we're on the 13th consecutive year of double-digit growth for vinyl. Um, and with no signs of stopping, in fact, the the growth of vinyl purchasing has, has been bigger during a pandemic when no one could go to a record store uh, than it was the year before. So the hobby uh, and the passion for it seems incredibly resilient to, uh, to uh, waverings in, in the marketplace and in fashion and in, in, of course, giant tragedies like the global pandemic. It will be very interesting to see how we want to spend our time now that things are opening up and we can go back to record stores and see live music again. Uh, I know with Record Store Day coming up on June 12th, people are dying to go to their local record store. Uh, We've been hearing a ton from record stores all over North America that says we've been getting phone calls and and, and communications from from our people forever who are like, I just missed you guys. Like, we can't wait to come and visit. Um, we hope there's something left on the shelves after June 12th because Record Store Day is happening again. They're doing two drops this year. Record Store Day is happening again on July 17th. Chris, I'm pretty convinced if we went to a record store on June 13th, the pickings would be very slim um, because, <laughs> because people are very eager to participate in the culture of buying vinyl again and, 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 and supporting artists they love and just participating in really the tangible identifiers of being a music fan. We like to say that like we interviewed 40 people for this movie and not one of them said the great thing about listening to records is being able to press three clicks on your laptop and have Amazon send you any vinyl record you want. Nobody said that. Everybody likes the communal aspect of uh, buying records, finding records, learning about records. It's like being in it's like being in music college forever. And um, and thankfully, because vinyl is something you can buy used a lot easier than you can buy CDs or cassettes or other things used. There's no such thing as a used MP3, obviously, but. Um, uh, college uh, vinyl college is still relatively cheap if you are uh, if you can do the used thing. Hmm. Uh, people are I mean, our live chat right now is, is, is so great. Um, Starlight Sessions, which I'm pretty sure 
I'm pretty sure is tied to Starlight Room, which is a, a legendary Edmonton music venue. Um, it's one of my favorite places to be. I can't wait to be. I can't wait to have somebody spill beer all over me and then not even apologize when the Starlight Room. Bring it on, room, man. Bring it on. I don't care at all. We're going to be doing selfies, and I don't even care at all. Starlight Session says fans are buying a lot more hard copy music now directly from developing artists. Money goes straight into the artist's hands, and it doesn't get tied up through through multiple parties, which I think is a great point as well. And then a bunch of people are just writing in about their own experiences. Heidi, I feel like I have to translate code here. You guys can do it for me because I don't even know what this means. But Heidi says um, she has several black records passed away, uh, passed down from her mom from the Compo Company out of Lachine, probably Lachine, Quebec. Uh, says you can't even. Wow. It says you can't even play. Do you know what she's talking about? It says you can't even play them on a modern turntable. She says the other day we we tracked down a couple refurbished gramophones and they're very excited. That is old school. It's really cool. Uh, vinyl is is this tangible reminder because the technology was invented long ago and there were several iterations of how to listen to music since then. Vinyl is this tangible reminder of the past, present, and now future of music. Uh, and so, yeah, we hear from a lot of people who are like, I have my great-grandfather or great-grandmother's 78 records. What am I supposed to do with them? I have 45s. I have a vinyl flexi disc that was once on the back of a cereal box. I have a dozen of those. Like, um, we have, uh, Chris, we have a ton of great stories of, of vinyl being uh, unearthed and dusted off for uh, for the citizens of Vinyl Nation to treasure. Yeah, and it sounds like that person may even have, not even vinyl, it sounds like they're probably shellac. <laughs> Uh, essentially, which for those of you who don't know is made from bugs. So uh, it's not even plastic. And that's why you can break it. That's why we have the Donna Reed moment. And, you know, from It's a Wonderful Life, smashing the record. So luckily vinyl, yes, you can break it, but it's a little bit sturdier than shellac. So take really good care of that stuff. But I can't wait for you to get to that gramophone so you can actually yeah. listen to those records. Are you, are you, hang on a second. The original records were made out of pressed bugs, like insects? Yeah. Yeah, shellac is 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 made from bugs. So. Wow, yeah, shellac, shellac is not only made from bugs, but because of Pearl Harbor and the advent of World War II, most of the shellac used in the pressing of of uh, of shellac records in America came from Japan and from East Asia. And with the advent of World War II, that that pipeline stopped, and that led to the invention of of the plastic that vinyl is made of. Uh, also, another another of our favorite trivia question um, uh, tidbits about this. Shellac is the reason that albums are called albums because shellac used to be so big and thick that in order to listen to three or four movements of a symphony or something, you needed about 10 of them. And they came wrapped in a giant binder that looked like a photo album. And so that's why the earliest collections of flat things that music were placed on were called albums. Very cool stuff. Um, yes. Hope Hope Springs on our live chat says my hubby's an audiophile. He's got tons of vinyl, big Maggie speakers, preamps, record cleaning machine. She says it's so tactile. There is intention involved. And, and then she simply says it worked on me. I don't know. What that <laughs> uh, and then there's there's an interesting comment from Scott, um, which is a great point. And Scott says, I do find it interesting that vinyl is the only medium to have come back from the dead. CDs will not make a comeback. 
Does this bring the conversation full circle? Is this back to the four out of five census thing? Is that why? Do you think? I, I definitely think so. I, I think, uh, you know, the it's. I don't think it's a coincidence that vinyl records start their resurgence at the same time the iPhone is introduced. So now you have this device that you don't need the iPod in your pocket anymore and it's separate from your phone. Like, oh, it's so convenient. Everything was about convenience, ease of access, all your music with you all the time. And again, like I said, I was becoming disconnected with, with my music. And I think a lot of people from our generation and, and even younger, like I said, with my daughter, they never had that tactile relationship with the music. And albums are just these big, beautiful objects of art that you can you can take a look at. You pull the record out of the sleeve. It's a ritual. You put it down on the turntable. You drop the needle. You hear the crackle. And you're going to spend time with that music, with that artist, with that band. Um, and you have to pay attention because you're going to have to flip the record over. So it's not necessarily something you can just put on and just completely forget about. Definitely not for hours or hours unless you want to wreck your needle. So, you know, it's, it's something that you're going to do with intention. I put on records when I'm making dinner and I, and I joke that I pay way more attention to the record than I do to the stovetop. So I'm not the, I'm not the best cook, but I'm pretty good at, you know, managing the playlist on the turntable. Um, and I think that ritual is is what is bringing people back. Um, and it is really cool to go into somebody's home and they have their record collection and you can just learn a lot about somebody from the records that are in their collection as long as they're okay with you looking at them. And if you own records, usually you're pretty much okay with somebody flipping through your stack and hopefully they discover something that they've never seen before and they say, hey, can, can we put this on? And hopefully you're cool enough to let them handle the record themselves <laughs> and put it on the turntable. And if they don't know how to do it, you get to show them and then you can really freak them out and say, wait, I'm not even going to turn on the receipt and you drop the needle and they can still hear the music still coming hear the out music. of the record. Exactly. Right. And it's like, this technology is really, really old and I couldn't put it into the phone, but I hope you're appreciating it right now. So yeah, I think for all these reasons, it's just something that's cool. And again, both young and old, all generations, all different types of people are, are really finding that connection with vinyl records. Yeah. Our little guy on, on, on the lousy record player, I'm telling you about them. Not, it's nothing to <laughs> brag about, but even our little guy, I've got a video of him. I'll keep for the rest of my life. He's like a year and a half. And he put on Bob Seger and he's just on the chair and he's just and, and I released I had to release myself because he's doing the equipment, you know, like somebody like learning to scratch for the first time. <laughs> he was he's like he's like an 18 month old. And I'm just like, ah, release myself of the pressure. His, the joy he was experiencing at full volume was so wonderful. Um, I love this. Like Helen writes in and says, I have some old school. She says literally school record players with little shocks and springs on the feet so that the record doesn't skip during the social dance. I mean, this is so great. <laughs> People are all writing in. By the way, I'm glad I had a chance to clarify. Starlight Sessions has chimed back in. They say, yes, this is our digital venue on YouTube, birthed from the legendary Starlight Room. So there you have it. Subscribe to Starlight Sessions. Uh, how cool, man. Isn't that great? And yeah. uh, fellas, let me ask you this in closing. We still respect your time. We're going to, I know you've got stuff to do today, but but Jeanette, I mean, here's, here's a good one because uh, obviously now you guys are the definitive voice of vinyl nation uh jeanette That's, wonders that was our yeah, yeah that, that was your goal the whole time that was the idea yeah she says well what and, and i guess we could probably talk about budget and all these types of things but she says what record player would you recommend to get someone started says my daughter has asked for one for her birthday uh you guys could answer this a million different ways uh, I'll jump in and then Kevin, yeah. I want you to chime in yeah, just because yeah. I have a teenage daughter. So if you don't want to spend a ton of money, don't let the naysayers scare you away from Crossley Cruisers. I know there are a bunch of people who are audiophiles cringing right now, but you know what? They come with built-in speakers. They're not that expensive and they're super fashionable and you can get them in a variety of different colors and styles and it will not break the bank. And 
they also all come with uh, uh, connectors in the back. So you can plug in better speakers if you don't want to listen to it through those speakers. And that's how my daughter started. She had a Crossley Cruiser turntable. And then this past year, I was like, you need an upgrade. And so um, I got her a Project Audio turntable, um, which is also really easy to use. It had a built-in preamp. And that's the thing is a lot of people don't realize like, oh, you, you're going to need to plug this into a receiver that can handle a phono connection or it needs to have a built-in preamp as well. And, and Project Audio, you can get some really good turntables for not a lot of money, but if you want to spend just a little bit more than you would spend on like a Crossley, um, that has been uh, good for me. Uh, Kevin, if you want to talk about if you really just want to splurge or just like go all in, like what they should do. Uh, I'm just going to say, like, I, I don't have a particular model to advocate. I will say if you have a local audio gear shop, um, patronize them. Yeah. And if the local audio gear shop is staffed by some dude with a bad mustache and nicotine on his finger, that's fine. But if he's a jerk to you, shame him publicly and let the rest of us know because nobody nobody who is eager to uh, involve themselves in vinyl and vinyl culture and share a deep love of music with themselves and their family and friends deserves that. Also, I think we would say, uh, I think we would say it's important that a, uh, that you take into account where this record player is going. Uh, if this record player is going to be in your daughter's bedroom, uh, that's one thing, um, because I'm, I'm guessing that's got a smaller footprint than if it's going to be in the living room and part of uh, family listening. So due to the, the interesting thing, one of our favorite things about records and vinyl is records and vinyl create a sense of space and a sense of, a sense of home. Uh, so where something goes is important to what you buy. Uh, and finally, we have been told not only um, we have been we have learned it through the course of being at Northwest Fest, not only about the Starlight Room and about venues all over Alberta uh, and record stores in both Calgary and Edmonton and, and a bunch of other cities. Now, we have not been to these places, but we now have a wildly inflated set of expectations about what's going to go on in Alberta. Um in terms of Alberta vinyl culture, and we are eager to uh, experience it firsthand. I'm, I'm Chris, and I don't live in the same place, but I'm volunteering him for this, him for this mission too. Well, I think we could, um, you know, I mean, I think we could probably cook up some sort of an event. Or, or some sort of reason for us to all get together and enjoy some great music and and uh, the band uh, that that plays the title track for this show they're called Ayla Brooke and the Soundmen the album Desolation Sounds on Fallen Tree Records the drummer wow. Chris Sturwald's watching and he says I'd love to tell the story of us pressing our album onto vinyl and I know that we've got DJs in, including Yuri Wench and and I ran into DJ Junior Brown yesterday downtown Edmonton he can't wait to get things going again at at the Chameleon at Bower which is one of my favorite places places to hang out so so let me just say uh we have a community um we're going to be releasing a uh a real talk beer in the next few months uh so i mean i'm i don't know if we're maybe we're going to do some sort of i can't believe i just dropped that publicly i'm not going to tell you i'm not going to tell you who's brewing it yet Maybe we do some sort of a keg party. I don't know. I mean, I think that the options are endless here, fellas, but I'm but I'm I'm not BSing you. I'm serious. I would love to put something like this together sometime soon. In the meantime, uh, watch this hard segue. People can check out Vinyl Nation right now on demand by checking out northwestfest.ca kicks off today, running online on demand through till May 16th. The filmmakers Kevin Smokler, Christopher Boone. We could have talked for three more hours. Uh, this audience right now is, is going to 
is going to just absolutely annihilate me for cutting this conversation short. Everybody's having so much fun. <laughs> Fellas, thanks for your time. Thanks for your understanding with that little weird interruption, that skip, if you will, Certainly. in the middle of it. It's great to see you both. Oh, thanks for having us. This was fun. Yeah. Right, thanks you, so much. You got it. See you guys soon. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, the, the full length film. Very cool stuff. Uh, the live chat right now is just, this is just so great. Kim, I love this because Kim is drawing our attention to where we have not really. Uh, so there's vinyl, obviously. We've not talked at all about eight tracks. Um, we, we've talked a bit about CDs uh, and obviously streaming music, right? Which is like the whole new. Can you imagine back in the day? I mean, like, like I've traveled Europe. I've traveled South America for like months at a time. And part of the space that you would set aside in your backpack was for your discman, a bunch of double A batteries and and the the cherished like I mean, every person would be different, but I would carry about 15 CDs like about because, you know, your pack to be too heavy. You don't want it to take too much. Room. So those 15 CDs out now, like, you know what I mean? When Kids I, these days are going to have no appreciation. <laughs> no appreciation. I actually, when I was traveling Europe, um, as one does, I guess, um, I did, uh, I had my iPod and it was so, so important to me. Yeah. Because it was literally, maybe I'm going to sound self-important, but my soundtrack, it, it is what took me through. And so when I hear some of those songs, even to this day, like Postal Service, oh, the band Postal Service, band. was like, is my Europe, is my Europe experience. Like yeah. it was just, oh, but I actually have, I can't, like, I'm going to have to do a hard disagree with you on this one about the kids these days. Just for a change? Just for a change. <laughs> yeah. True, um, but that's what I'm here for—is to disagree with you. Um, that's what I'm paid the big bucks. You for. think kids have an appreciation for for the old school, the challenges of—I mean, like carrying like because I'm even thinking back to the zip up. Remember the brand Case Logic? Yes, Remember the, the Case Logic cassettes that you'd have in your car. I I, I still like the thing is, is I have an eight track player. I have eight tracks. Um, I have a, a like a record player, and I also have that big massive binder the thing that is really shocking to me though is like remember when you used to like protect that with your life protect that with your life because if you had that binder and or even on the the uh what is wire words yeah the, the visor the visor your car. Yeah, yeah yeah the sun yeah. visor there we go um the we, velcro thing that you could slide all your cds into and it was terrifying if someone caught glimpse of that because someone would steal it now you can just leave that huge binder yeah like on <laughs> Do whatever you want, man. Yeah, you can leave it outside. No one will touch that thing. Yeah. Are you? Are you, Sam? I've never, you and I have never really talked about this. You strike me as a guy that might that might have a vinyl. Oh collection. man, I'm. Yeah. You know what's funny is that like you know like high school for me was the CD era as well. Like I, yeah. I got my first iPod I think like late in junior high and that's what I'd listen to on the bus and that right. kind of stuff too. But I like I remember burning mixed CDs for myself yeah. and downloading music and yeah and but like the other thing and, and and this is really weird and I was actually kind of thinking about sort of the experiential like listening of it is because you know in in my house I have an entire bookshelf with about four hundred CDs on it yeah and I was so proud of this collection for so long and and long after. Uh, streaming became mainstream. I still kept buying CDs because I just liked having a physical product. And and then I kind of woke myself up and I was just kind of like, you know, it's I, I would buy vinyl 
presses of the records that I really cared about. Yes. And and then I just kind of realized that like you know if I'm if I'm gonna pay for music if I'm gonna pay for the physical option object it's it's just gonna be vinyl from now on like yeah you know even though I've a, a really nice stereo and a five disc CD changer hooked up to it which I've never put more than one disc in. Um, I still I love that my vinyl collection is the thing that's growing the fastest and then even you know we, we talked about a month ago how I'm like currently finishing my basement and you know if if 10 years ago I was planning how to get my my house ready I, I probably wouldn't be prioritizing a place to store records and a place to put a turntable but in you know now in the design of how I'm I'm finishing out my basement like there has to be a good stereo down oh 100% there has to be a, like a listening lounge to, space to kind of reinvent yeah. it I'm going back like, like Kim's comment by the way she's she's talking about she says like there was basically no better way to get in touch with music than to be you know, have a blank tape and you're trying to use the radio uh, yes. to, to get to get the blank and to like make your mix but the funny thing is like in in the world of broadcasting you know you like DJs, right? The hosts of these shows, DJs, it's, you try to hit your post. So you're doing promos for the radio station. I think back to the legendary Rick Sadler on AM 106 in Calgary. I mean, like I grew up the top six at six, the top 10 at 10. AM 106, top six at six. It was like this big. And then he'd be like, hey, everybody, it's Rick Sadler here from the Sadler Dome. And he'd be like doing his thing. And and it, talk, 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 right up until Boom, Steven Tyler kicks it with his like love and an elevator, whatever, right? So, but so as a broadcaster, you want to hit the post. So you're like, you know, you know, uh, coming up next on uh, this is Aerosmith, love and an elevator. And you're like, yes, I hit the post. I nailed it. Meantime, yes. all the kids who have one finger on pa- record and one finger on pause are like, stop talking. <laughs> Stop talking. I want to get this. Uh, stop talking. Yes. Right. Yes. Oh, memories. Share your memories. Here's the thing. We got a federal cabinet minister that's like literally waiting, being like, <laughs> when are these idiots going to do this interview? <laughs> so I got to stop talking about vinyl and CDs and tapes just for a bit, just for a bit so we can get serious and then we can get right back to this. I'm quickly going to remind you that the team at Kubi Energy is hiring right now. They're looking for journeyman electricians. This is a perfect transition into our conversation with the Honorable Mary Ng, small business minister. Kubi Energy knows that it's it's been a tough go for a lot of people that have been working traditionally in oil and gas. As an example, Jake is the I mean Jake's the founder, right? Jake Kubiski has been on the show before on our solar panel. His personal story is a guy working in the oil patch that took his skilled experience and turned it into sustainable energy and, and his entrepreneurial journey. So he gets it. And right now, if you feel like this might be a fit for you, you're a journeyman electrician that might be looking for a bit of a, a change in career or a new opportunity. Today's the day to email your resume to info at kubienergy.ca. That's K-U-B-Y, info at kubienergy.ca. We wish all you job hunters the absolute best. And if you're a real talker that ends up getting on with Kubi Energy, you make sure you let us know. Well, this federal budget is uh, one of the biggest ones, one of the most ambitious ones. Obviously, there's a lot of spending in it. It's been described as an election platform by some political critics of the federal liberal government, uh, Finance Minister Christian Freeland, and of course, the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on this show just a couple of weeks ago argued that it'll fight COVID-19, it'll support jobs and growth, and it will invest in a sustainable economic recovery that includes all Canadians. The Honorable Mary Ng is Canada's Minister of Small Business Export Promotion and international trade minister thanks for tolerating uh, you know our, our swerving conversation around music and records and tapes and cds 
and welcome Ryan, to Real Talk. Kidding? Thanks for being here. Are you a real, are you like an audiophile? Are you a real music collector? Yeah, well, you know what? I was listening to that and I thought, oh my gosh, I can actually, I can relate to everything. I can relate to the CDs in the, you know, in the binder. I can relate to, you know, to the double A's in your backpack. Oh man. Oh, so you've been waiting for a while is what you're saying. (laughs) So I think it's great. But listen, you know what? Before we even go to start, I have to actually, and and I apologize for this, but I got to do a shout out to the Penner family, to Marcia and to Margaret. So they're Edmontonians. And the reason I need to do that is because they're the mama and the grandma of, uh, of, of my communications director in my office. And you're going to be surprised by this, but you know, 75% of my senior team from my chief of staff to my comms director, to my director of policy are all Albertans. Hmm. And in fact, uh, Edmontonians or surrounding Edmonton. So I got lots of Alberta in my on my team, but I needed to shout out to the Penners. Well, uh, hey, I'll, I'll amplify that <laughs> shout out, and I'm and I'm stoked that the Penners are watching this morning. How how does having an office full of Albertans influence your perspective as the minister? I mean, essentially in charge of small business export promotion and international trade. It's terrific because I have uh, I have uh, a team that is uh, that embodies that uh, you know go get it attitude that entrepreneurialism and you know just that you know roll up your sleeves and let's find the solutions to the problems. So this budget, of course, sets us up to finish this fight against COVID nineteen and puts us on that road so that we can help our businesses get on that road to economic recovery and to create the jobs that's going to fuel our future economy. So I love the example that you gave just as we were just before we started talking about a great Albertan who's taken, you know, his former experience in oil and gas and turn it into an innovative, you know, an innovative uh, new business. And, uh, and, and, and there are terrific, terrific examples of that. And that's what this budget uh, will do. It's going to help, Traditional businesses uh, get on that road to recovery, but it's also going to invest in some really excellent entrepreneurs. And I hope many, many out of Edmonton and out of Alberta so that we can get on this road to recovery into, uh, you know, beyond COVID-19. Minister, I don't know if you read uh, John Iveson's piece in the National Post. Uh, this was back essentially the day after the budget came out. And he said, uh, he said, the federal budget's not for you. He said, it's out to crush the NDP and shame conservatives. And I want to read you a portion of what he wrote and give you a chance to respond to it. He said, the liberals have decided to extend the wage subsidy, the rent subsidy, to extend lockdown support until September at a time when it should be transitioning to help the firms that are really in trouble. The government said it would predicate its budget on labor market performance, but it appears to have ignored month on month improvements in jobs that have brought unemployment rate down to seven and a half percentage points, just two percentage points above where it was pre pandemic. He's making the argument that the economy is on a path to recovery and that a lot of this spending and this support really is is either unnecessary or not focused in the right direction. How, How would you counter argue that? Well, I would counter argue it by all the small businesses that I've been talking to and have been talking to from day one. I was uh, here in Alberta just last week talking to both the Edmonton and the Calgary Chambers and uh, and the businesses who they represent. My office and my department has had, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, daily calls at 11 o'clock where businesses would dial in and we'd be able to hear from their perspective what the issues are. And of course, then it was just like, how do we make sure that we continue to operate? 
as a business. And we're looking to make sure we can pay our bills. We're looking for a bit of that working capital because we got bills to pay. I don't want to lay off my people. How do I keep them on payroll? And I've got this thing called rent that I've got to still pay for because I have, uh, you know, I, I have those obligations. So right now, uh, and to all the businesses and the Canadians who are listening, I mean, um, and I know that the situation is challenging uh, with COVID. And I want you to know that the federal government is there. We're there with you, for you. But finishing this fight and having that support and those businesses, particularly the small businesses, having that support is absolutely essential. So my answer is I listen to small businesses across this country. I listen to the entrepreneurs across the country. They are looking for this additional support while vaccinations are getting into the arms of Canadians. So they're going to have this until September. We've created some flexibility there. Should the COVID situation require it? I hope not, but should it? We have some flexibility to make sure that businesses really are supported. We've always said, look, we got to help you until we can get to the other side of COVID-19. And at the same time, our job recovery uh, program, for example, starts in June. That's exactly what businesses have said. They said, look, we're going to plan for our recovery and I need to know who am I going to bring back? Am I going to extend the workers that I have now or am I going to add hours? Am I going to need to bring in new ones? So the job recovery program out of this budget starts now or sorry, starts in June. So that's going to run sort of at the same time that the emergency programs are. So it really is finish the fight and support businesses at the same time, make the investments, let them do that planning. And then on digital, like, I mean, think about it. You walk around the, you know, kind of in your neighborhoods. How many businesses have you seen take, you know, kind of use solutions like adding a click to their brick? A lot, right? So there's a $4 billion investment here for digital adoption because we want to see more businesses get those, uh, those tools that they've been asking for uh, so that they can compete getting into this recovery and certainly compete going forward as well. Uh, there, there are some positive things, I, I, certainly for workers in the budget, uh, $3 billion invested to enhance EI sick benefits, as an example, from 15 to 26 weeks. And, and as is the case with the budget and government expenditures, you got to pay for it somehow. And I think in the small print, people may not have noticed, for example, that, you know, EI premiums are set to rise uh, for workers from $1.58 per $100 of insurable earnings to a dollar eighty-three uh, over the next seven years or go to, uh, or so to keep the EI fund in balance. How do you balance, as minister? How does cabinet balance? How does the government intend to balance the the need for for some of what Canadians are asking for, like more comprehensive or more robust uh, sick day protection, EI benefits, etc. While at the same time recognizing that it's going to mean downloaded costs on on individuals. How do you strike that balance? Uh, let me say ideologically, and then how does it play out? Well, the position that the Canadian government has taken from day one is uh, help Canadians get through this. I mean, workers and people, I mean, you think about uh, in Alberta, um, CERB was a very necessary uh, support that was needed in order for all of us to do our part to keep people, uh, to keep people safe. But our, our approach has always been, um, Let's support businesses, let's support Canadians and in this budget, making those right investments so that we can get to jobs and growth. There is the best way to be able to afford this, uh, the, um, the, the best way to afford the supports that Canadians are looking for is to create the environment so that we businesses can actually grow and create jobs. And in that jobs and growth gives us uh, gives us that 
ability to, uh, you know, to pay for the programs. I mean, when we look at the $30 billion investment that we are going to be making to get the over 100,000 women that have come out of the workforce because of this pandemic, because they're juggling so many hats so that we can do affordable childcare is one area where we're really looking forward to working with, uh, you know, with the provinces and working with uh, businesses to make sure that we can really tackle that uh, so that benefit, so that businesses, uh, families, women, entrepreneurs, women, workers are, uh, are able to get get back into the workforce in full-fledged because we're only as good as our people, right? I mean, so making sure that those investments are there. And for businesses, I mean, a $1.5 million expense, um, you know, sort of covering of expenses, we want this budget to uh, incent businesses to invest, you know, to invest in themselves. So when I talk about these technological solutions, we want to make sure that as, as businesses are investing in themselves, that they're getting the incentives to do that too. When businesses are growing and creating jobs, um, it's going to help families, it's going to help communities, and in that, it is also going to help Canada's economy. So this budget is very much about growth and jobs, and uh, and we're there working with Albertans and Edmontonians. I think that there's some really terrific opportunities. I'm also the international trade minister, so making sure that businesses are uh, not only starting up in Alberta, but that they're scaling up and accessing new markets is also what I need to be doing. And there's some great examples of Alberta businesses doing exactly that. And uh, I was, you know, I was doing a virtual trade mission just in Europe just a few weeks ago and a couple of really great Albertan businesses in the, you know, in the clean technology space, really being able to uh, look at Customers. I mean, uh, not only here in Canada, but around the world. So I'm looking forward to making those investments so that our businesses can indeed grow. Minister, I'm. I, it's a fascinating. Uh, I mean, I mean, your 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 portfolio. Um, I mean, Minister of Small Business and Minister of International Trade. There are some synergies there, obviously, but but also those are those are huge. I mean, you know, what do Canadian small businesses need most and what does Canada need most on the international trade front could be wildly different conversations. I think back just off the top of my head, you know, lumber, um, aluminum, canola. I mean, there have been like huge challenges for Canadian exporters over the past while. Um, what has changed there? Are there more challenges as a result of this pandemic? And, and what's this budget doing for Canadian exporters that have had a tough go over the past few years, including through that Trump presidency? Yeah, I mean, the work that we've done consistently, and I think we have rec a record to show for this, which is standing up for Canadian workers and standing up for those Canadian businesses. And export is so important. Canada is a trading country. And uh, so making sure that we are helping our Canadian exporters get access to markets and uh, to stay there or to grow their customer base is what we are doing. I mean, I get to tout that Canada is the only G7 country that has a trade agreement with all of our other G7 partners. We have trade agreements, uh, of course, uh, renegotiated in NAFTA by Christian Freeland um, with the U.S. and Mexico. Uh, but we also have trade agreements in Europe and in Asia Pacific as well. But what really are trade agreements? They're customers, a billion and a half customers in the international marketplace. And my job as the small business minister is to make sure that small businesses, women-owned enterprises, indigenous entrepreneurs, racialized entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs are able to get access to those markets. It isn't the easiest thing. I mean, for businesses, if you're a small business thinking, how do I 
how do I grow my business in Europe? How do I grow my business into, into Asia? So during this pandemic, I haven't let the pandemic stop me from helping businesses go global. I have hosted several virtual trade missions. So we've had to pivot as a government as well. This latest one um, is to France. Over 300 businesses that we took. I mean, one of the Alberta businesses that we took there is a company called Carbon Upcycling Technologies. They are terrific. They're using CO2 as a resource. Like they are, they, they've launched recently an e-commerce uh, platform. It's called Expedition Air, but they're selling consumer products made from the captured carbon emissions. So this is the kind of innovation and creativity. But I, but 300 businesses that I took to France uh, with women entrepreneurs, indigenous entrepreneurs, another over 200 businesses that I took to South Korea. Uh, we've, we had a mission go to Singapore um, to celebrate celebrate the third year anniversary of our agreement with the um, with the European Union. We did a two day summit over 1100 businesses. And this is just within the last six months. Right. I mean, so making sure that we really are helping our businesses, particularly our small businesses. And interestingly enough, during this pandemic, the mode of being able to do this virtually seems to have created a more accessible way for our smaller businesses to be able to learn and understand what those opportunities are in the international marketplace. So in some respects, uh, what we're doing for the main street businesses is uh, is uh, very complementary to what we're doing to those very businesses that are starting and they're starting global, uh, as far as I'm concerned, that uh, and 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 helping them get access to those international customers. Minister, we've got to let you go, so I'm going to leave a few questions on the table. But but I look forward to speaking with you again. I'm going to tee this up. So our next conversation, we've got some listeners here that are saying that there's inequity in the tax rates. They say that Canada needs more progressive tax system between small, medium, and large businesses. They say there's an there's an, an inherent disadvantage there for small businesses. We'll launch there next time we have a chance to connect thanks for making time for us today we appreciate it thank you so much ryan i look forward to coming back again the next time that i'm here i'm going to tell you how me as a new immigrant family who settled in winnipeg ended up learning about the edmonton oilers and having huge fans of the family (laughs) so i got to tell you about that the next time we talk okay well sarah hoyles will keep notes on all of that that's the honorable mary ing our appreciation to you that's canada's minister of small business export promotion and international trade want to let you know that we have active requests in interview requests with canada's official opposition the conservative party of Canada with the uh, NDP, federal NDP, and with Canada's Green Party. We're looking forward to checking in with their new leader, Annamie Paul. Should be a great conversation. So there's always wheels in motion, always things happening behind the scenes here on Real Talk. I always look forward to hearing what our other elected officials, what the other parliamentarians will have to say about that federal budget. And of course, we'll continue the conversation based in large part as well with what you're telling us. Where's your impression at? What are you small business owners looking for in a federal budget? What sort of a Assistance would actually mean something to you and and what's maybe not as relevant or, or not as applicable. You know, Lawless as says small business help has not really covered the very small business um, where maybe punting rent or taxes down the road was a worse idea than trying to limp through. Um, you know, Kim says a, a lower tax rate for for really small businesses or for smaller small business, she says, would would be actually life changing. I've heard some great comments from people that that, you know, have have talked about, you know, I, I talked to a small business owner the other day telling me about the tens of thousands of dollars that they're paying in property taxes every single year saying, you know, we haven't even been able to be open 
I heard from a guy yesterday. I won't say who he is because it's it's really not my business to share his business publicly. But he said every he said we he said we had a lot of money in the bank, like relatively speaking, they're a small business. But he goes, we had we had money in the bank before this pandemic. He says every month that we're not open, it costs us about twelve grand. Like this is a small business owner. It's not like this isn't CNRL or Suncor or or RBC, you know, or Google losing. 12 grand a month this is this is a real life human being uh with a small business that employs some other people he said we had money in the bank before covid he says we're going to come out of this and their forecast i mean who knows when this is going to end right get vaccinated stay home let's all you know be smart etc etc all the usual things wash your hands wear a mask let's get back out you know let's get back out there and 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 get back to as close to normal as we can find this this guy is telling me he's so eager for that he says we're going to be 200 g's in the hole we're going to be we had money in the bank when it started. We're going to be 200 G's in the hole. He goes, we're going to work like hell, of course, because he's an entrepreneur. And that's how you approach this. You entrepreneurs know this. He goes, we're going to work like hell. He goes, we got a four or five year plan. He goes, we'll be OK, but it's discouraging. Right. And everybody's got different solutions, which is, you know, I think also worthwhile noting that that we want this to be a forum for discussion where, where maybe the Honorable Mary Ng comes on and prompts someone like Heidi to say it's hard to believe this is actually what a politician is supposed to be like. When we're so used to what we see elsewhere, says Heidi, you know, but then there are going to be some people that think probably what Mary Ng talked about there or maybe what the federal budget contains is, is out to lunch and doesn't fit. I mean, I think that there's a conversation that demands to be had and we're having it in, in snippets uh, over an economy that is showing signs of recovery. Some people saying economic stimulus and support has been important, but it's especially important to keep it focused in the right direction and have those hundreds of millions or billions of dollars uh, focused in the right direction to impact meaningful or to to, to have a meaningful stimulus effect. You can reach us anytime. Talk at RyanJesperson.com or use the hashtag RealTalkRJ and of course our live chat. It's a beautiful animal. It's a beautiful, wild animal. And they solve the world's problems there every single day on our YouTube channel. The team at Westworld Computers powers our studio each and every day. And of course, they wanted to remind you that that in addition to the Mac lineup, in addition to all the Apple products that you've known them for for more than 40 years as an independently owned small business, they're also all about sound. The sounds of the summer will not sound so sweet or they'll never have sounded more sweet. Then when you invest in an entire home Sonos audio system, they can hook you up at Westworld, recommend what works best for you. This is this is the, the audio system everybody's talking about goes through your entire home, but not all the time. You want to turn on the patio speakers, turn them on. You want to move that sound to the kitchen or, or, or maybe upstairs. They're watching a movie. You want to kill the music upstairs, have it playing in the basement. You know, while you shoot snooker with your friends, whatever the case, I'm describing my dream house, not where I live right now. It will have Sonos and I will get it from Westworld Computers. Voice control, multi-room listening, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth streaming, all day battery life. They can answer all your questions in person in Edmonton or at westworld.ca. We also wanted to remind you about Power Edge. This is our friends at Athabasca University. This is a really, really neat initiative. You know, tomorrow's Digital Wellness Day, and we're going to dedicate our Real Talk Roundtable to that, to digital wellness. It's one of the themes of what they have going on right now at Power Ed. You can see it here at powered.ca. Powered by Athabasca University, short online, on-demand professional development 
development courses and certificates like leadership, as mentioned, digital wellness, allyship, inclusion, artificial intelligence, digital transformation, and more. You can learn all about it and find your fit. Learning on demand. I love that at poweredge.ca. Our next guest has 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 endeared herself uh, to thousands of Canadians for the way that she has shared her personal experiences, her opinions, her candor on social media. Whether you know her personally or not, you certainly know her if you're on Twitter. Uh, Dr. Fiona Matatel is a doctor uh, of obstetrics and gynecology based out of the province of Alberta, making her Real Talk debut today. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? We've never met. In person no you got it bang on it's great to have you here i've been i've, I've been so curious even to see what you look like because you're you, I, I, I you know you have this great your, your profile picture this awesome wonderful it's like a cartoon version you got your mask on you're a physician it's come to represent your account to me has come to represent uh sort of somewhat of a trustworthy source for information and insight through the course of this pandemic and i can't remember i was racking my brain earlier and planning to talk to you i'm like did i follow her for years before the pandemic or have i just felt a connection with her in the last year or so have you are you are you like old school have you been on are you an og of social media or was this something that came about as a result of the pandemic you know i i think it, i'm having those same feelings too that i feel like i've known these people forever um I started on Twitter years ago when Chris Hadfield was up in the space station and I went on Twitter to follow him. Then I didn't do much for a while, then just started, you know, connecting on Twitter. And this last year has been huge in terms of connection for good and for bad um, with colleagues, with, with people, and just as a place to go to both rage and find some solace, uh, with other humans. Has that been, do you think that, I mean, has, has there been a need for an outlet like that in past that, that COVID-19 just exacerbated? I mean, with regards to like frustration or stress or rage, um, I would imagine that those aren't feelings that you felt just for the first time ever 14 months ago. I mean, how, how much has that changed? How much has the need for an outlet changed in the last while? I think first off for us, Alberta physicians, it started before the pandemic, as I'm sure you're aware, um, as a place to come together and advocate not only for ourselves, but for our patients. As a Alberta physician who works in reproductive health, um, the raging started about two years ago with some changes and proposed changes to our patient care in this province. But I think what the um, pandemic has really um, forced us to do is to come together in spaces where we normally would have gone to a coffee shop, to a pub, um, get together, laugh, cry, and we don't have that now. Um, so Twitter has become a place for, for all of that. And I think for many of us in Canada and Alberta, it's somewhat of a safe space. Um, I find myself posting a tweet then going, oh my God, I better delete that because there's language in there that could get me in trouble in terms of um, my job or insult somebody. So uh, it's, it's a place to come together and uh, for the good and the bad. It's been uh, fascinating to watch healthcare workers 
uh, it, it's been fascinating. I, I keep talking about this, how uh, um, so when I win the lottery, because I got these big plans and I've already decided how I'm spending the 30 million and everything. And uh, and part of that is I, I can't wait to uh, I'm gonna start doing long form documentaries. It's always been a dream of mine to do documentary films. And I think looking back on the impacts of COVID-19 and some of the trends, some of the things we saw, what, what will have a residual effect, what will go away, what will be but a memory, all these types of things, cultural influences, how we feel about masks, how people change the way they behave, physical distancing, spatial relationships, all these types of things. Um, one of those is the the um, first of all, the stress that healthcare workers have faced, um, some of the vitriol that they have faced, also the enormous appreciation they have faced. Um, but I wonder if some of that is is kind of going away. We had guests earlier today, uh, physicians that were they were saying, you know, remember sort of back in the day, you know, we're all in this together. And and if you were to take a look at the news headlines these days, uh, you might have to search for evidence that we're all in this together, and you'd find ample evidence to argue the contrary but doctors have had to step up in a way like not before and a lot of new accounts have 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 started because doctors have felt the need like they've never felt before for advocacy i mean even just here in alberta as you talk about the alberta md war room it's unofficial uh (laughs) but it's like if not my favorite account on twitter it's like top 10 um they're so proud as they should be that they have more Twitter followers than the $30 million a year war room. Uh, but they've been fighting for Alberta doctors behind the scenes and, and doing a hell of a job of it. Uh, it. It's been, I think it's, it's placed an unprecedented onus. I think on a lot of physicians who have reached out, some of them we've asked to be on the show and they've uh, felt the need to preserve their anonymity, which is telling in itself. Um, but this on uh, a profession, and I'm not just talking doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, paramedics, whoever you want to talk about, uh, respiratory therapists, um, that, that are already feeling pulled and strained and stressed and exhausted. And then there's the advocacy angle, which for many has been very unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. We're not trained to do this. Um, for a lot of the, my colleagues I see on social media, we're at a stage in our career where we really don't have any shit left to give. Um, we're speaking for ourselves, but sometimes for our younger colleagues or, or colleagues who aren't in a position where they can speak up. And it puts a target on your back as well as, um, as doing the work, but you get a thick skin and um, you just keep on going. So one of the reasons we reached out, I mean, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time anyway, so thanks for doing this. But one of the reasons we reached out was a, a thread that you put out just a short time ago uh, yesterday where you said when all of this is behind us, you know, there are a few Albertans you said that we need to, to give out awards to. And first up, the award for helping so many navigate vaccine booking and you nominate the Vax Hunters who we had on just a few days ago. Just a couple of amazing people, a couple of remarkable people. Um, you've nominated Robson Fletcher, who's done an incredible job with the CBC. Uh, Robson, in, in my mind, uh, ha- has been one of those that has really stepped up uh, to make a major impact. Y- you've nominated Julie Van Rosendahl, who joined us a few weeks ago. Julie is just obviously so amazing um, for her work. You say getting us going on sourdough starter and distracting our thinking when she when she when she blew up that story about the changes in butter. Uh, that was what she was talking to us about. Who would have thought that an interview about butter would go through? 30 minutes and be absolutely amazing. But then you ask who else deserves awards and what should we call them and what should the recipients get? And we've been having some fun. Maybe, maybe, maybe we call them the reject the premise awards. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there, there's a whole lot of great suggestions. Where'd you get the idea? Where'd this come from? You know, it just came to me yesterday. <laughs> so I think like many Albertans uh, last weekend was 
the worst. Um, your rage on Monday morning was catharsis for me and many of my colleagues. Um, and I sat in a very low place uh, over the weekend thinking about the numbers on one hand, um, fellow Albertans behaving in ways that put the rest of us at risk and the anger where that is not, it's thinking of themselves. They don't see what's happening to patients, to people in hospital, to those of us looking after our loved ones, um, our sick people in the province. So for me, the weekend was peak rage. And coming out of that, I was at work yesterday and I was uh, on call at the hospital. So my day started in the emergency department, um, was called down by a fabulous colleague emergency physician, spoke to some of the nurses down there, all in PPE, doing the right things, took a patient to the operating room, working with nurses, um, unit clerks, other physicians, everybody just doing the right thing quietly and greatly. And as I drove home, I was thinking, okay, got to get out of that bad headspace because that's only really a few Albertans. They're having a big impact, but it's only really a few. This isn't my province. This is not who represents us. This is not what's going to get us through. And my raging was no longer productive. So I thought, you know, who are those helpers? And like, um, like you guys were talking about at the beginning, it's what Mr. Rogers said, look to the helpers. And there are far more helpers on big scale and on small scale doing the right thing and making lives better for the rest of us. And I think while we do need to bring attention to the bad that's going on and appropriately rage about it, I think on the other hand, we do need to refocus some of that spotlight on people like Julie Ben Rosendahl. She's an amazing human who not only with distracting us with Buttergate, um, but quietly she is helping support small businesses in her community, the restaurants. This tweet came up yesterday that she's helping raise money for India. And she is my Alberta, not a rodeo clown. And um, so this is a very fresh new idea. I don't know what to call these awards. I loved that I've had over 30 nominations that followed my three and many who I feel bad that I missed. Um, but the journalists, a bunch of journalists were listed. And I think that's where the name, um, what was it? I reject the premise award, which I think is fabulous. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't know why I'm thinking of my mind goes in. I try to I try to pull back the curtain so the audience can know what goes on between my ears while I'm having a conversation like this. And and, and, and I think oftentimes in metaphors, because I think they, they cut to the chase. And I think of, you know, the people that attended this rodeo over the weekend. And I'm thinking of them like mosquitoes where you do not underestimate the mosquito. I mean, malaria is, if not the biggest killer in the world, it's among the biggest killer. I mean, mosquitoes in some parts of the world are, are absolutely deadly and can be a real problem. Uh, but a mosquito at a picnic as well, were you to have all your friends together in a fabulous spread with the finest cheese and a nice chilled Gewürztraminer, as an example, or, or I might be more of a Chablis guy right now, I'm feeling. Um, and you were to allow a pesky mosquito to destroy the picnic, turn everyone against one another, send everybody home uh, feeling poisonous with elevated blood pressure and nothing but anger. You would have let this mosquito win when the best way to deal with it is just 
to smack it down every once in a while. That's how you got to deal with it. And what I love about this is that you and whether or not there's ultimately going to be an awards show and I'll donate my time to host it. That would be my honor to do so. Whether or not we get actual plaques or trophies or, or maybe a sash of some sort, whether or not we're able to gather and have a, a swanky catered event is is irrelevant. Uh, what matters is that you've started a conversation on social media, which can be a real cesspool, and you've mm-hmm. focused people, you've reminded people that, that, like Mr. Rogers said so many years ago, we need what his mom taught him is we do need to look for the helpers and we need to celebrate the people. I mean, I think, you know, you talk about people that are putting on PPE. I think about the people that are disposing of the PPE. You know, I'm thinking of the people that are cleaning up puke uh, in the bathrooms or, or, you know, or or, or wiping people's butts. I mean, like it's not all glamorous. What happens Mm -hmm. in these hospitals? What about the the, the food delivery drivers? What about the people that are that that don't get all the I mean, hey, we get a lot of attention. We get a lot of praise in this job. You know, you get I mean, let me say physicians a little bit different. These guys get piled on a whole lot and it's ridiculous. But but there are people that are that are notable. They get the accolades. They get the attention. And then there are thousands of people that don't and i'm hoping to see a trend um, as part of your thread or a bigger conversation about appreciation on an individual level where people see in their own neighborhood i mean our our letter carrier rick you wouldn't know this this, he observes i want to say i'm not saying he's not observing safety protocol don't misinterpret the comment but you'd never know there was a pandemic going on if you were to see Rick doing his job because he's always wearing a hat that makes everybody smile or laugh, especially in the winter. He's got these ridiculous pom-pom toques. He wears shorts almost 12 months a year. He's got a smile from ear to ear every single day. He knows the little kids' names on the street. He's friendly with the dogs. I mean, a guy like Rick has provided people's connection in many circumstances to the outside world just by delivering their mail every day. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're quietly amazing people who live and walk among us. I was, as you were saying that, I was just thinking of the last pregnant mom I looked after who had COVID in pregnancy and had a real struggle with that. And she caught it at work. She is a new Canadian, works in a setting where she was not adequately protected from this virus and caught it in pregnancy and came to hospital. We um, were there with her. We cared for her through her delivery. And at the end, she was not complaining about anything. She was thanking all of us for our work looking after her. And those are the people that make our province and make our place great. And those are the people I think deserve the accolades. So I, I don't know where these awards go, Um, I'm really happy to see a number of the nominations I got are guests on your show, which tells me you're doing it right. You are shining a light on what is good about this province, but please don't stop the rants and the trash talk because we need that too. (laughs) But Can I say though, um, you, you tweeted something to me. I don't have it in front of me. Uh, I don't remember what it was and I don't mean this to come across as self-congratulatory, but you tweeted something at me that stopped me in my tracks. As a matter of fact, for maybe the first time in my life, I went to respond to it and then I needed time because I, I you said something along the lines of, of you hope that I knew that my rants or my advocacy was was giving you the power to push through a tough shift or something like that. Yeah. And it, it just was like <sighs> to hear that. Right. Like and and your you 
I'm so glad I can say this to your, well, kind of to your face. Um, <laughs> but you just like, you filled my tank. And, but I, to be vulnerable for a second and to be an open book, I struggle with it and wrestle with it because I am an emotional person. Anybody that knows me personally uh, knows that I'm usually pretty funny. Um, but sometimes I'm pissed and when I am, I'm not always the best guy to be around cause I wear my heart on my sleeve and I always have. And I had to learn as a young man that I'm inclined to say things that can hurt people's feelings. I've had to learn to apologize in my life. I've had to learn to focus my rage. I mean, that's on my personal journey. So as a broadcaster sometimes, and people have seen it even on this show, um, sometimes I'll pull back the curtain and sometimes I'll walk myself into territory where, uh, I'll make confident comments on things that not everyone will agree with because it's the way I feel and because I'm going to say it and I'll get feedback from people and it's mixed feedback and sometimes it's like thank you thank you for fighting thank you for throwing punches and oftentimes it's not feedback like that oftentimes it's you know uh, implying that there's a negativity that it's divisive that it's uh, that it discourages people it puts people in a bad headspace I had to turn it off you're, you're you were taking me to a place that was not healthy and I really wrestle with that because sometimes it's, you know, it's important to throw punches sometimes. And sometimes it's important to advocate and, 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 and to, you know, we talk to people on this show. Some of them will, will choose their words very carefully. Other people will shoot from the hip. Both of them can be effective approaches. Um, but I've really struggled with it. And, and I and I think about it in we're on the air for two hours a day. We're off for 22 hours a day. And I spend the 22 hours thinking about the two. <laughs> yeah, I can very much relate. And, you know, I think and this is also part of what makes Alberta great. And we need to remember is you struggling with that and bringing to the show that honesty and that work helps us do our work and our work helps keep the province going in terms of health and the workers at Cargill, their work keeps, keeps us fed. And it's only as a society where we all contribute and elevate each other. Can we get out of this mess? Doctor. So here we are. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that there is room uh, for a conversation around in all seriousness, some some form of awards. I absolutely love it. If it ends up just being a hashtag or if it just ends up being this thread that you started, which I'm so grateful for. I mean, I've found people there's people on there. I mean, there's a lot of familiar. I mean, like uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Kasia Gasparovitz, who's been on the show before. She's got this like yeah. her, her statistical what she brings to the table from a numbers analysis and mapping standpoint. Right. And then and then and then public health professionals that come in at a more sort of uh, lay person's uh, level to, to help us all understand mm-hmm. some of the trends. I mean, there's just been so many different angles here. And, and I love that you've started the conversation. Uh, oh, and by the way, you're still showing up for work every day and helping people out, uh, which we appreciate very much. Thanks for doing the show. Keep it up. I, I bet you've gained some new fans here today from doing this interview. And just wait till the podcast hits this afternoon. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ryan. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Doc. Proud to consider you a friend. Uh, That's Dr. Fiona Matatal, who's an Alberta-based obstetrician, a gynecologist. Um, And of course, you can find her on Twitter at Fiona Matatal. I I link to all of them uh, out of the beginning of, uh, well, right around 8 o'clock Mountain, 10 o'clock Eastern, uh, every weekday morning at Ryan Jesperson. That's my Twitter handle. She's like soft-spoken and chill. Yeah. But at the same time, like her Twitter is unreal. 
she's just I'm you don't always have to be this like blustering that's kind of what I'm getting at I guess in Mm. a way like there's a time and a place for that but also just I'm so proud of and it's not just medical professionals of so many people that have taken a measured responsible but assertive position on their messaging through the pandemic. I love that assertive. And I think, you know, looking back to just yesterday's episode with Albert, again, articulate, thoughtful, reflective, looking at, you know, what are small things, but powerful things that everyday Albertans in whatever station in life they are in, what difference they can make. And that's why I love, when I started seeing this thread you know, start to catch on and people nominating people. Yeah. Um, it just, I don't know. It, it was heartening. Very cool. Mm. Yeah. I, you think of, you think of what does assertive mean? There was a, a listener who I know means well for sure. Um, and wrote into the show, sent us an email and he was like, Jasper, you should, you should debate the owner of the whistle stop cafe, this cafe that was like locked up and chains around, you know, chain link fence around it yesterday. You should debate him, uh, on the show. It'd be like, it would be like great interview. And I have no doubt it would be great. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, like, you know, watching the Harlem Globetrotters beat up on the Washington generals is great. Um, but we're not learning anything, but I, I just thought, you know, what's, what's the debate going to be about? Like. I believe in science. I don't believe in science. I win. Yeah. Debate done. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the show. Like it's the, the, the assertive nature like to me, we need to address things like vaccine hesitancy. And I understand. I mean, somebody, you know, someone will point out and say, boy, there was a, a case of blood clot from the, the AstraZeneca vaccine here. And and, you know, someone's in a bad way or somebody's passed away. And, you know, and then people will point out, well, hang on a second, though. There's been a handful of these out of millions of doses. And and, and, and there's room around that. We have to address that. We have to have conversations around that kind of thing. Right. Absolutely. You know, we have to have those conversations. But when it comes down to the basic, like, is covid real i'm not going to entertain debates about that right i mean there's just ample evidence <laughs> there's Let's ample move evidence on. like we we are beyond that we've moved past that i mean i know some folks have not but it's at their own peril but i mean a flat earth conference will get a couple thousand people yeah. to show up so like you're not gonna <laughs> you know what i'm saying like you're not gonna convince everybody all the time and, and i think it's a bit of a fool's errand to try to do so I want to show you a bit of audio or rather a bit of video in just a second. This is amazing. But first, I want to remind you that the team at Alta Moving and Storage has been so proudly locally owned uh, and locally operating in Alberta. They wanted to remind you that they are Alberta's movers. They're Albertans just like you, families and friends that depend on them. And when it comes to moving, you can depend on them. They're trustworthy. They're dependable. They're knowledgeable. And they're specialists at finding solutions that fit your unique situation and your budget. The star of their show is the pod-style moving container, where they can drop it off at your house, fill it up at your leisure. Whether you need help in hands or not, they can make that happen. They drop it off at the new spot, and there you go. You don't have this truck, this big 18-wheeler, idling outside your house, adding stress. They take care of as much as you need when you need it. They are Albertans at Alta Moving and Storage. Let's move together. You can find them under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. A reminder that our hashtag RealTalkRJ is powered by the team at Park Power. 
And of course, Park Power has been providing Albertans with internet, electricity, and natural gas for coming up on 10 years. They take 10% of their profits and plug them back into community. You can find out more about those initiatives by following them on Instagram or Twitter. In the meantime, when you check out their website, parkpower.ca, use the promo code 2021-REALTALK to knock $70 off your first bill, residential or commercial, at parkpower.ca. Your eyes just lit up. Am I allowed to ask why? Or is this like a behind the scenes thing? I'm thrusting you into the spot. Your eyes lit up big time. They really did. Did we just confirm President Joe Biden on tomorrow's show or what? No. Uh, Okay. But better news is that AHS says that in the first 40 minutes of online booking today. Yes. More than 16,000 appointments were made. Okay. In the first 40 minutes. Yeah. Is that good? I'm trying to figure out if that's good. That's a lot of appointments. 16, uh, there's four and a half million people here, though. I'm trying to in figure the out the first if, 40 minutes. Yeah, but 40 minutes is a long time. Oh, my goodness. Like if like if if the Rolling Stones were coming to Alberta oh in 40 minutes, they would sell way more than 16,000 tickets. But you have to also take into account I'm not what, trying to web, be what website they're using. Yeah. If it's got the capacity, the horsepower, the horsepower. to be able to handle those. Okay. I mean, to me, okay. to me, what it is, is it's saying there's um, there's excitement. I don't know, excitement, but there's a willingness there. There are people that are saying, I am now eligible. Get me in there. Get that syringe yes. in my arm. Yeah. Now. Yeah. It's, uh, it's It looks like a lot of real talkers have been doing it. Scarlet's watching and she says, Jespo, let Sarah have this one. It's not, we're not, <laughs> thank you, Scarlet. This is not, we're not setting up some sort of like uh, I- inherent disagreement. Um, I'm just, are we I'm, not? I'm just trying to, like, I'm trying, here's what I want to see. Like, I want to see, I want to see news reports say that, you know, 150,000 Albertans booked their appointments in the first 10 minutes. That's, I'm just looking for context. 16,000 in 40 minutes, like, more than 16,000 people will access today's episode of Real Talk. So I'm just saying 16,000 is either a lot or not a lot, depending on your perspective. Fair. I'm not trying to be, I guess what I'm trying to do is encourage us to be even better, everybody. <laughs> give it goodness. the old Give it the old college try. Thanks, Coach Jespy. <laughs> you got it. Emma says, I'm getting vaccinated today and I'm so excited and I feel like a kid on Christmas morning. Jake says, Jespo, don't diminish the fact <laughs> That there were 16,000 appointments made. I'm not diminishing. I'm not. Uh, Some of us that want to book an appointment badly today are doing things like running a streaming show. So I haven't even been able to try and book yet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Others say, I agree. You know, Sarah, my daughter, who's 17, uh, can't because we're in the middle of finding out if she has an immune disease. This from Tracy says, it breaks my heart. We're between a rock and a hard place. Uh, Mariah, filmmaker Mariah Bronze tuned in. What's up? It's good to hear from you. She says, she says, I started off with 50,000 people ahead of me and two hours later i had my appointment booked for next wednesday okay so it sounds like demands there so maybe sixteen thousand booked appointments there's probably a ton of people waiting yeah waiting to get in and be able to book which is great um uh ashley says i logged on at 7 30 this morning there were twenty five thousand people ahead of me this is like the stones are coming to town you betcha right you remember were you ever the one that would like line up in, in like would you camp out ahead of time did you ever camp out to buy tickets for anything back in the day in the olden days in the olden days no no <laughs> sam did you ever did you ever camp out no the closest i've ever come is like i remember being in in high school and like i could drive and i had a 
debit card, but I didn't have a credit card. So yeah. I would have to go to like a mall Ticketmaster kiosk and buy my tickets in person yes. if there was a show coming up. So like that's the closest I've ever really come to that. It was always really yeah. exciting. It was really yeah. exciting when you got there though, right? And then they printed them off right at the time and they come yeah. off the printer and you'd have your tickets. Oh, it was like, yeah. I mean, okay, physical tickets are, are probably unnecessary nowadays, but I love the fact that I have like a drawer full of yes. all the tickets from every show I've ever been to. Absolutely. I still, I mean, like I've been to a couple concerts where they rip the ticket stub in half and you're like, I know. I know. I, you know what I'm going to do? I am, I am going to call out my friend Vince by name because whenever he would buy tickets for the two of us to go to something, he'd fold them in <gasps> half and put them in his wallet. And then I'd get to oh. the show and he'd hand me my ticket and was like, you've already ruined it. <laughs> Fair enough. I Just only, no respect. <laughs> I only have one ticket. But it's from the very first concert I ever went to. And it was like, I still have it. And I have it with the cassette tape that they gave out free at the concert. A free tape? Is yep. it a single or a full length? A single. Okay. Yeah. Well, who, are you going to tell us who it is? I feel like, well, now I have to. Yeah. Ani DeFranco. Oh, cool. That's a great, what do you, what do you? At um, the, just this little tiny theater on the U of A campus. I was in grade seven. Ooh. And it was just like, it was incredible. Andy Stachansky was the name of the guy that opened. And he, that was this, the tape that I got. But the, the actual uh, ticket is Ani DeFranco. My very first concert, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. not, not including, uh, religious music because that's a little bit different. You know, the band would come to the church. You know, I don't really count that as no, my that first concert. My first concert, rock set. <gasps> Get out of oh, town! Oh heck yeah, yeah heck yeah! World tour, <laughs> rock set, Calgary Saddledome, Stampede Saddledome, or whatever it was called at the time. Maybe it was the Canadian Airlines Saddle. No, it's probably the Olympic Saddledome at the time. Would have been the Olympic Saddledome. Yeah, rock set on the floor. Me and my buddy Whoa. Jamie Baker. Oh yeah, big I love deal. first and last name. Oh yeah, Jamie big deal. Baker. I haven't seen Jamie Baker in thirty years. I'd love to see that guy. Um, Do you know your Sam? My first concert. Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking about that. My first big name concert. I mean, like, there's probably like some little sort of like you know locals and 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 some like other stuff before then. But I remember my first big name concert was uh, Santana. And it was totally by fluke. I went uh, as a teenager to babysit my cousin so my aunt and uncle could go to the show. My aunt wasn't feeling well, so she gave me her ticket. Oh. And uh, that was a lot of fun. That was really He's cool. unreal in concert. Oh, my God, yes. Carlos so, Santana. Yeah. Speaking of CDs and vinyl and tapes, yeah. you wonder one of the worst things that ever happened to me in my life? It's not true at all. I'm totally <laughs> exaggerating. I'm driving. Doesn't matter that it was a, a white Jeep Cherokee 4x4 sport. It just happens. I'd like to provide some context here. Stick shift, which was awesome. I miss driving a stick shift. I drive a stick I every love, day. I love it. I miss, I miss it. Me too. Like learning how to power shift and just hammer that clutch. And, you know, anyway. And I pulled the Carlos Santana CD. I was coming out of the CD player and I put my finger into and, and I had the CD in my hand. And then I had to downshift. And I did it with the hand holding oh, no. the Carlos Santana CD and cracked the CD in half. No. Woo. And to this day, every time I think of Carlos Santana, I think of the cracks. <laughs> I think of the cracked CD. Um, Chris camped out in 94 to get front row tickets for the Black Crows. That's amazing. Whoa. Um, uh, okay. Taylor Smith deserves a shout out. First name, last name on our live chat for doing the quick math, uh, which you'll never get from me. Taylor says 16,000 bookings in 40 minutes means 576,000 bookings in 24 hours. So that's pretty quick. 
says means almost all of Alberta could be booked in seven days. That from Taylor Smith. Did you see this one huh. from Trevor? His first concert were, were the Smalls Ooh. at the Eastwood Community Hall in 1992. The Smalls were Corb Lunds, yeah. like original when he was the drummer. <laughs> Corb was, Corb was uh, I think he played bass for the Smalls, right? Yeah, but so, so but no, it's okay. Oh, you're right. Because look what I did. I was literally just going to, right before you started, we had Corb on like two weeks ago yeah. and I'm such an idiot. I've seen Corb play lots, like yeah. lots. Love Corb Lund. When he's on the show, I always pretend like it's kind of not a big deal, but I'm like, oh my God, Corb You're fangirling like crazy. It would be like having Dave Matthews I mean, on I the am show too. for you. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. And uh, anyway, so I was like, and, and so he's about to play. People that watch, you real talkers, you know what happened here. Corb like let me down so graciously. Uh, we didn't let me down. He lifted me up. But I but I said, uh, I go, and here he is, you know, live on Real Talk, you know, for, and I'm picturing him because I, I have vivid memory uh, at, at Mac Hall, University of Calgary, yes, like yes. old school, like back when Feist was playing, like as in placebo, her band. And I mean, all these people that went on, like the Watchmen, like so many Watchmen shows, amazing concerts in that era, like like early 90s. And um, and I remember, I vividly remember watching Corp play and he's in front of a microphone, right? So here we are like 25 years, 20, 25 years later. Fast forward. And he's on the fast forward 20 years later. And I'm like, and here he is live on Real Talk. The first time I saw him, lead singer of the Smalls, Corp Lund. And he's like, Actually, I wasn't the lead singer of the Smalls. I was the bass player. But he's, and I'm like, oh, yeah, but I mean, uh, but you had like a microphone in front of you. We were like, and he's like, yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway. And he's like, this is one that I wrote for the. And we kind of went in and I just was like, oh, man. Well, maybe it's just because he's so epic that I thought that he was a drummer. It's like, you thought that he was the lead. We blew it. And it's like, he's just that. He's like a legend that he can do anything. We blew it. Okay, we blew it. Yeah. So. <laughs> Anyway, but we've got a lot of Smalls fans on the live chat right now that are checking in. I wanted to show you this uh, before we go, before we sign off for the day, because you have to see this. This is hilarious. So you, you mentioned that uh, the game last night between the Washington Capitals and the New York Rangers, mm. this is the retribution. They're all choked that Artemi Panarin, the Rangers superstar, is out, and Tom Wilson's not paid a, paid a fine for manhandling him and, and whatever. So anyway, so so this is this is hilarious. First of all, the video, um, this is opening face-off last night, and, and I know not everyone's going to love this, but here you are. This is what we call a good old fashioned line brawl. Everybody uh, pick your dance partner and let's go. Although you see the defensemen, the Caps and Rangers D-men are like, I think we're just going to let the forwards fight this one out or, or maybe we'll go. Uh, everyone's expecting this, but I thought the Daily Show tweeting it out. Hilarious Twitter at 710 a.m. <laughs> That's that's like real talk at eight thirty mountain and here we go. So that was that was last night's show. But but this tees up nicely an email that I wanted to read this from Angry Adam. Who chimed in? We've been talking about fighting in hockey. If you're wondering in the background, none of us remember. No, but in all seriousness, a conversation about domestic violence actually is how this started and, and a great uh, roundtable conversation earlier this week. You can find it on our YouTube channel. You can download the podcast. And we started talking about things like how, how do you raise kids and in particular boys into young men and what's some of the cultural messaging and the influences and how does sport play into it? And there's no definitive answer here. We promise to keep exploring it. And if you can't stand what you're about to hear, I encourage you to take some time to write a rebuttal and we'll provide a platform and time for those as well to talk at ryanjesperson.com. This is a thoughtful email. It's a good one from Angry Adam who says to the Real Talk fam. I love when people use words like family and community and to my fellow Real Talkers. It, it just evidences what you have helped us create here. Adam says the conversation that's emerged out of the fighting and hockey point of contention is an important one. 
And I think that it was appropriate that the topic of toxic masculinity that had been recently brought up on the show may have sparked this discussion. I think that your guests on the panel did an incredible job at extrapolating some of the underlying causes of domestic violence and its tendency to gravitate toward men as the offenders. The panel correctly identified early education as an important factor in developing some of the conditions that enable this circumstance that fosters and facilitates overly aggressive and violent tendencies of personality and behavior. He says, I feel it's very easy to misinterpret perceptions of the term violence and the term aggression, you know, generally culminating into false pretense that perceive both terms as inherently evil or impermissible while they are both the source of a tremendous amount of unnecessary struggle and suffering. I feel it's necessary to dissect how aggression is taught in early education, how an incomplete understanding of aggression can, can, can reproduce its harmful qualities and how an incomplete understanding of aggression limits its capacity to actually be a beautiful concept of justice. He says, I brought up the question of why is it that boys and girls are separated in sports at a young age? says biological differences in gender can really only be witnessed at the upper echelons of sport. I know many women who could beat me up, says Adam. It's not because I'm weak. It has nothing to do with my manhood. It's because I've never trained in MMA, for example. Many women have. Doesn't make them manly either. It's just talented. My biological gender traits do not have anything to do with it. If I was an elite MMA athlete, my biological gender traits may have more impact in comparison to an elite female MMA athlete, but obviously We're talking about athletes that represent a minuscule portion of the population. He says, I was able to reach a fairly high level of competition in hockey. Uh, I even trained with pro players. He says, Haley Wickenheiser is a far better player than I am. Not even close to comparison. Not even close. He says, but the reason why there's not as many Wickenheisers in pro hockey is not because they don't have the ability, but rather the social construct of our world. It generally does not give women the same opportunities to develop some of the qualities that they would need to compete at high levels while breaking through to the NHL level, uh, maybe more difficult. Perhaps there are biological differences that may be larger factors. They only become apparent again in that upper echelon. He says combining genders at a young age in sport may have an incredible impact, not just on the number of women competing at high level sports, but also socially. Perhaps we would become more focused on competition as opposed to dominance. It may also be a meaningful way to address the debate around transgender athletes in sport. He says for the majority of male hockey players, beer leagues, let's be honest, going to be one of the highest aspiration you might achieve. A small portion will play junior and even smaller portion will reach any level of pro. He says it's been demonstrated that that reaching the highest levels of that continuum is possible for women. Haley Wickenheiser is a classic example. Separation of gender in sport at an early age only serves to reproduce elements of entitlement and dominance that can have a detrimental outcome with regards to the social development of young men and perhaps even passivity in young women. The focus on other skills argument that many young women are told. He says the real task is to teach both empathy and and aggression equally to both genders at a young age. The purpose of this to develop an ability uh, to possess both characteristics of, of empathy and aggression and critically assess which is needed given any given circumstance. An overly aggressive person is unable to apply empathy and an overly empathetic person will be unable to express aggression. A person who demonstrates balance in this capacity will understand when either is necessary. He closes by saying fighting in hockey does, to a certain extent, express this sentiment. 
It requires an ability of judgment to display aggression when necessary. He says, for example, a player may receive a four minute major penalty for boarding, but the play itself may have been a malicious attempt to injure an opposing player. Perhaps that four minute penalty, not enough of a deterrent when it comes to future action. As in society, the capacity to judge whether aggression is needed in certain circumstances comes from a capacity to understand empathy. Alternatively, it works in both regards, and it's worth a thought. That from Angry Adam. Argue with him, disagree with him, agree with him. Thoughtful. Brought something really interesting to the table. I love exploring the idea of uh, and I know this happens in some like, for example, youth soccer. It happens in some levels, not maybe at the club level. Um, basketball. I, so you see boys and girls playing together. And it was a really interesting angle. When I was a kid, there was no there wasn't a, a girls soccer team. So I was on the boys soccer team and I loved it and I kicked their asses. And um, it was I don't know. To me, I was just I was. I mean, I, I enjoyed playing soccer with my fellow teammates when it was an all-female team, but uh, I feel like those were really formative years when I was a little kid playing on the Belmac soccer team uh, in and amongst the boys, and I was just the same. Yeah. I, was, I was on par with them. Maybe I'm delusional, but I think I was good. <laughs> and it really, you know, empowered me, and I was able to go on to varsity, so... There you go. Yeah, I I just to me, um, I love that this is not we're we're not trying to curate or cultivate this community where everybody's always going to agree on everything. Um, where you know people say, well, it goes without saying. Well, I don't know. Does it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I like that. Um, me too. You know, this after I've just said that I have no room for debate on things like whether or not COVID is real, but we draw certain lines and and, I think and don't that's apologize. A pretty- pretty okay thing to just plant a flag but I, on but I, yeah, yeah but i but i do want to have i do want to have conversations about things where my initial response is like wow come on come on and then go no actually right and this audience is really really great mm. i think at reiterating that like we get so many different i mean people firsthand experience right i mean lisa says my daughter played full contact football with the boys oh. you know even into high school right uh, tracy says we didn't have enough young people growing up in a small town you had to play together you know, I mean, Jillian says, here's my reply to the idea of putting boys and girls together in sport. Um, remind me of why boys and girls were put together in schools to make boys better people. So what's in it for the girls? Interesting. Not my question to answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, that's can we do a whole episode on that? We should. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, so we've much- talked about the because it's happening in the states because they're looking at legislation and policy around transgender folks being involved in sport and where where can they play? So I think that this is a, a huge conversation. Yeah. Lawless says, you know, you, you teach your little boys to use their words. Right. And then you go along uh, about how great it is that Cassian fights Kachuk. It's a Battle of Alberta reference. Uh, well, the little guys watching the game with you mixed messages mm. um yeah i mean but it's like i said yesterday and i, and I don't know, know that i necessarily have the words i wouldn't want this to be transcribed as a thesis uh for for a, a, a phd but i do think we also and i understand that this is a this this may have more holes in it this argument than swiss cheese and that's fine um i don't have to be right all the time <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> see, I save these comments for like two and a half hours into the show. Um, but in all seriousness, I do think we need to also establish that real life, it, that, that, that pro sports and the pro sports arena is not real life. It is real life in a way. In other words, racial slurs uttered on the ice. That's real life, right? Homophobic slurs uttered on or off the ice, both real life. But the role that a, a, a hockey player may play in the dynamic of pro sport and, and the culture of hockey and the way that it works and the way that players have been kept safe. And if you talk to people that actually play, which is so important, you know, we talk all we talk about lived experience. You have to talk to people with lived experience. You have to talk to athletes in the sport about this. Right. Um, hmm. It's not the same. Uh, I understand the point that Lawless has makes, and it's a good one in that it gets us talking about you tell your young son to use his words to not just sock somebody on the playground while at the same time you cheer when Zach Cassian does it to Matthew Kachuk. But I don't think you can go apples and apples on that one. I, I just I, I don't think you can. It doesn't it doesn't uh, we, we can we'll just keep having this. We'll keep stretching this conversation over the next month. Yeah. I mean, what to your point, the idea of, well, let's talk to some athletes. Yeah. Who would go on the record? Well, yeah, so I mean, then my, the wheels start turning for me. Like, who, who can we talk to about this that can, that can speak about the lived experience? You were learning more about, um, I, I don't know why I'm thinking of Junior Seau right now. It's just a tragic story. But, you know, you hear of athletes um, that, that now, I mean, often it's boxers, it's it's hockey players. I mean, there's been some tragic deaths. Derek Bugard, Wade Belak, Rick Rippin. I mean, the hockey community has lost so many. Um, and 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 football players, the NFL. I mean, Junior Seau was was a legend. Um, um, can you so Junior Seau? So he took his life. He died by suicide, um, but did it in a way that would preserve his brain for study. <gasps> right. And it's it's tragic. It's tragic. Uh, at the same time, that says something. Mm. Where he knew, like, I can't speak for Junior Seau, obviously, but it would imply to me that he knew that his brain needs to be studied to explain ultimately why he died, mm -hmm. right? And I just think, so yes, um, a good friend of mine from childhood used to coach me in basketball, Marty Morazic. He's now Dr. Martin Morazic at the University of Alberta. <laughs> I talked to, I interviewed him once on TV. I was like, so Marty, and then I'm like, I should probably call him Dr. Morazic. lower your voice. But he's Doctor. he's applied his, he, out of the University of Alberta, he's applied his, I mean, his 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 gift and his his intuitive nature of his research is focusing on this. And he's one of many, many researchers around the world. So, you know, I mean, we'll, we'll continue to, to uh to have this conversation i love it i mean it's almost a shame that we're wrapping up the show because we have so many amazing comments coming in, mm -hmm. in the live chat right now um emma says i think it'd be just absolutely dope to get andrew ference on the show he has been on the show he's in touch with us as a matter of fact andrew sent me a message a while ago that said if a guest ever drops out last minute i want to be first on your list and i thought i'm just going to start lying to andrew and telling him <laughs> the guests have You'll never believe it, yeah. but uh, we've got Again? another another guest has dropped that. out. He's going to go, what do you guys just get into the beer fridge all afternoon? You ever try to actually book a show? Am I coming <laughs> back again? We've got a great show in store tomorrow. As mentioned, Digital Wellness Day, and that's going to be the theme of our Friday roundtable, uh, which is coming up. And I'm very much looking forward to that. What does digital wellness actually looks like? Uh, what does it actually look like? Plus, we're going to check in with the team Doctors Without Borders. Another look, another angle on the crisis in India. Plus, more time for your emails. And we'll get into our most recent question of the week. A reminder, we'd love for you to fill out the new one. This week's edition at RyanJesperson.com. Make it an amazing day. We'll talk to you soon. The